Well, welcome to the um, start of the April 13th meeting. We won't do the typical introductions. We'll wait till 545 to do that, but I will take roll call. Vice Mayor Shipley. Here. Commissioner Lawson. Here. Nanda. Here. Commissioner Bully. Here. Thank you very much. And we are going to move into executive sessions. I look for a motion. Mayor, this is Commissioner Bowley. I move that we recess into executive session for approximately 20 minutes, discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorneys regarding legislation pursuant to KSA 754319B2. The justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The city commission meeting will resume in its in its virtual format in accordance with resolution number 7360 at the conclusion of the executive session. This is Commissioner Ananda, a second. Mayor Finkelai, there's a motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. We'll now be in executive session for, was it 20 minutes? Thank you. Here. Approximately 20 minutes, Mayor. Approximately. Commission Bullock. Yes, Sherry? Did you state your vote? Oh. Mayor Finkel, aye. aye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. I didn't think I. Or are we ready? Mr. Mayor Finkelai, we are back from executive session and we've been briefed on a legislative matter. Are there any motions? This is Commissioner Ananda. I would um, move that we direct staff to return ordinance number 9828 to our city commission meeting on April 20th for approval on first reading. Vice Mayor Shipley, second. Mayor Finkelai, we have a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Vice Mayor Shipley. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. aye. Passes 5 0 to put 98 28 on next week's agenda. Um, since our regular scheduled meeting does not start till 5 45, we will be in recess until 5 45, in which time we'll start our normal agenda. We are ready, Mayor. Are we muted? Mayor Finkeldye, welcome to the April 13th City Commission meeting. Before we start, we'll have a few words about the process from Port O'Neill, our Communications and Creative Resources Director. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. Um, just want to share some housekeeping items for this virtual meeting. This meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the City of Lawrence YouTube channel and- uh, Order, if you're talking, we can't hear you. Really? Here we go. Oh, it's muted there. Yeah. Sorry, too many mute buttons. Um, thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. I wanna share some housekeeping items for this virtual meeting. This meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the City of Lawrence YouTube channel and Cable Access channel 25. The public chat function is disabled. All chats will go to me. 
When you are not participating in the meeting, please mute your microphone. When you are participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you are not participating in the meeting, please turn your video off. You will still be able to hear the meeting. You can turn your video back on when you are participating. Turning your video off when you are not participating allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. If any trouble, please send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute microphones and or turn off people's video to minimize distractions. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of those listening remotely. And now I'll return the meeting to Mayor Finkeldye. Mayor Finkeldye, thank you, Porter. I will start with roll call. Vice Mayor Shipley? Here. Commissioner Ananda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkeldye here. We are all present. And before we begin with our agenda. We'll have a few words from Sherry Riedemann about the process for the meeting. Thank Mayor, you. Um, I'm just gonna provide a few procedural reminders. Uh, commissioners, please remember to state your name and title each time you speak. Mayor, after a motion is made and seconded, please call on commissioners individually to provide their vote. Then announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. <clears throat> City staff, please remember to state your name and title each time you speak. When the mayor calls for public comment on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. The raise hand function may appear in different places on your Zoom menu depending on the device you are using and which version of Zoom you have. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name. Comments will be limited to three minutes. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals should raise their hand to indicate they wish to speak. Staff present will direct you to the podium to speak following social distancing and safety protocols. Please state your name before speaking and comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Mayor Finkeldye, thank you, Sherry. The first item on the agenda is to approve the agenda. The city commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Does any commissioner wish to change the agenda or I look for a motion? Commissioner Nanda, I'd move to approve the agenda. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkelai, there's a motion motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkelai, aye. Passes five to zero. We now move on to proclamations. We have three proclamations tonight. And we're going to start with a proclamation for the month of April 20, 2021 as Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month. And I believe we have Margaret Bayer um, from KU to say a few words before I read the proclamation. Thank you, Mayor Pinkledye. Uh, yes, I'm Margaret Bayer. I'm a 33-year resident of Lawrence and a professor of mathematics at the University of Kansas. 
Uh, Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month has evolved, originating as Mathematics Awareness Week in 1986. It started at KU even earlier in 1984. It is a time to increase the understanding and appreciation of mathematics and statistics. We hope to convey to all, but especially to children, that mathematics is interesting, fascinating, even magical, and sometimes mysterious. You can follow Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month on Facebook and on Twitter, where you will find news, history, puzzles, and problems. The KU Math Department is sponsoring these activities. We had a KU student math competition, April 2nd, math and statistics competition for third through 10th graders throughout the state on April 10th, with a recognition ceremony on April 30th. The Russell Broad Undergraduate Colloquium will be given by Frank Doyle, Dean of the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Science on April 21st. This week, we're having workshops for fifth graders, and we have a series of guest speakers. Matthew Verlegger, a professor of engineering education at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University. Shane Haas, founding principal of Signition LP. And Magdalena Toda, chair of the Department of Math and Statistics at Texas Tech University and an alumna of the University of Kansas. Mathematics and statistics are of increasing importance in all walks of life. And we want to expose people young and old to the value and joy of mathematics. Thank you. Thank you very much. And as a engineering undergrad, I am a big fan of mathematics and um, think we need a little bit more of that in our community. So I'm happy to read the proclamation. Whereas mathematics is the foundation of discipline for science and technology, and mathematical reasoning, analysis, and problem solving are increasingly vital in preparing our youth to lead productive and responsible lives. And whereas mathematics is a living and growing discipline, continually being created and discovered, the power of mathematics is revealed in the richness and beauty of its intellectual structure and the diversity of its applications to almost every field of human endeavor. And whereas the beauty, challenge, and excitement of mathematics and its potential to enrich individual lives require that through mathematics education, we make its opportunities available to all of our citizens. And whereas the Joint Policy Board for Mathematics, a joint venture of the American Mathematical Society, the Mathematical Association of America, and the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, was established to articulate and advocate sound public policy concerning mathematical sciences and the field's ability to contribute to the public welfare. And whereas the Department of Mathematics at the University of Kansas is dedicated to the creation, application, and teaching of mathematics and to serving the mathematical needs of the community. Now, therefore, I, Brad Finkeldy, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, do hereby proclaim the month of April 2021 as Mathematics and Statistics Awareness Month to be observed in schools in the City of Lawrence in recognition of the importance of mathematics and mathematics education. Thank you very much for that and um, look forward to all the things and activities you are having um, at KU this month and for all you've already done so far. So thank you very much. Thank you for being here. 
The second proclamation we have tonight is to proclaim the week of April 11th through 17th, 2021 as National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week. And for that, I believe um, Betsy Anderson is here to say a few words. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Betsy Anderson. I am representing the Douglas County Emergency Communication Center and our dedicated communications officers who work tirelessly to keep our communities safe. Each year, we answer over 40,000 911 calls and dispatch over 120,000 calls for service for police and fire and medical. In a crisis, we are the community's first point of contact. The quick actions of the communications officers have an immediate impact on the outcome of that crisis. Whether it's instructing the caller to evacuate a burning building, teaching someone how to perform CPR, or trying to help locate someone that's having a medical situation in a remote location. Communication officers in many cases are the ones that are never seen, only heard and easily forgotten. We are the calm voice on the radio where they're, for those that are in need. Please join us in celebrating by proclaiming this week as National Telecommunications Week. Thank you. Mayor Finkel, I thank you very much for that. And um, it's hard to imagine maybe a tougher job than being on all the time and answering those calls and helping those in need in some of the most serious situations. So with that, I'm happy to read the proclamation. Whereas emergencies can occur at any time that require sheriff, police, fire, or emergency medical services, and whereas an emergency occurs, when an emergency occurs, the prompt response of law enforcement, firefighters, and paramedics is critical to the protection of life and preservation of property. And whereas the safety of our sheriffs, police officers, and firefighters is dependent upon the quality and accuracy of information obtained from citizens who telephone the Douglas County Emergency Communications Center. And whereas public safety dispatchers are the first and most critical contact for our citizens that they have with emergency services and are the single vital link for our police officers and firefighters by monitoring their activities by radio, providing them information and ensuring their safety. And whereas the public safety dispatchers of Douglas County Emergency Communications Center have contributed substantially to the apprehension of criminals, suppression of fires, and the treatment of patients. And whereas each dispatcher has exhibited compassion, understanding, and professionalism during the performance of the job in the past year. Now, therefore, I, Brad Finkeldy, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, do hereby proclaim the week of April 11th through 17th, 2021, as National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, and urge all citizens to join in honoring the men and women whose diligence and professionalism keep our country and citizens safe. I guess it says county and citizens safe, but it applies to the whole country. So. We appreciate that both locally and across the state. But thank you, Betsy, for that. And thanks for all the work of, of your department. Thank you. And our last proclamation um, is to proclaim April 12th through 16th, 2021 as the week of the young child. And I think Amy Gottschmeyer is here to say a few words before I read the proclamation. 
Hi, this is Amy Gotchammer. Thank you very much for giving me time to speak regarding uh, early childhood education and the week of the young child celebration. Uh, again, my name is Amy Gotchammer. I'm the owner and executive director of Google's of Learning Child Development Center here in Lawrence. We are an early learning program that provides services to approximately 100 children and their families in our community. Research tells us that children who participate in high quality early learning programs have better language, math, and social skills than their peers who miss this opportunity. They are also more likely to graduate from high school, less likely to become involved in crime or become a teenage parent, and more likely to become positive, productive citizens as adults. High quality early childhood programs are necessary for a strong future workforce. High quality childcare is also crucial for our current workforce. Simply put, parents cannot work if they do not have childcare. Yet many people are still unclear or uninformed about the importance of early childhood education. Our National Association for the Education of Young Children sets aside this week each year to celebrate the Week of the Young Child. It is during this time that we strive to make our communities aware of the great good high-quality care and education is for our youngest citizens and their families. The birth to five years are the most important of a child's development. Economists, business leaders, and researchers agree that high-quality early childhood services are among the smartest public investments we can make. One thing the COVID-19 pandemic has done is lay bare the critical nature of childcare to our economy and to the well-being of young children and their families. Even prior to the pandemic, when Congress increased funding for childcare, states were able to finally spend money beginning to reverse the effects of decades of underfunding by addressing childcare deserts, serving more children and families, raising payment rates, and improving quality of care and education. This positive return on investment is especially important now as the country and our community recover from the COVID-19 crisis. Every additional dollar that goes to early childhood education is an investment in our county's recovery and its future. As the U.S. Chamber of Commerce recently stated, Hi, without this interest, excuse me, without this industry's survival and ability to safely care for the children of working parents, every other American industry will struggle to return to work. The pandemic created widespread financial disruption for the child care sector and the families who depend on it, while increasing costs to providers to ensure that their programs are safe. At Google, Google's of Learning, we were lucky enough to be able to use CARES Act funding to make improvements to our own facility to increase natural ventilation and decrease the spread of bacteria and viruses. More resources will be needed over the long term to enact much needed policies to address the totality of the child care crisis and to address the significant gaps that existed prior to the crisis. I do realize that the city of Lawrence has uh, showed a, a specific interest in, in, uh, in, in putting investments into early childhood. And it is for all these reasons that we ask the city of Lawrence to commit to the investments that help stabilize, sustain, and support childcare and early learning so this essential workforce can continue to support children, families, and our economy through the pandemic crisis, recovery, and beyond. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amy, and thanks for your work. In the community, I um, was on the ballot board for 18 years, and, and I know you've done a lot of work, um, not only at your own center, but across the community in helping early education grow and, and strive. And certainly it is something we're looking at, the county's looking at, and even the nation and school district is looking at. So more to come. And with that, I'm, I'm very excited to read the proclamation. Whereas the Lawrence chapter KSAEYC, in conjunction with the Kansas Association for the Education of Young Children and the National Association for the Education of Young Children, focus on spreading awareness of the importance of early childhood education in Douglas County. And whereas the first years of a child's life are the period of the most rapid brain development and lay the foundation for all future learning, 
And whereas there are 341,830 children, both through age eight in our state, and 70% of children in Kansas have all available parents in the workforce, and whereas participation in high quality early childhood education saves taxpayer dollars, makes working families more economically secure, and prepares children to succeed in school, earn higher wages, and live healthier lives. And whereas at the same time, the cost of one year of childcare for an infant in Kansas averages $12,584 and $8,736 for a four-year-old, and the majority of these costs, which often exceed the cost of a year of college tuition, are borne by parents who often cannot afford it. And whereas young children need skilled, educated, consistent, and compensated early childhood educators to ensure that the children supported by families have the early experiences they need for a strong foundation. And whereas working families need sufficient high-quality childcare spaces beginning at birth to be available in the community and need robust subsidies, scholarships, and tax credits for families at all income levels that support the true cost of quality early education. And whereas we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the week of the young child so that we can continue to recognize and advance the early childhood education profession. Now, therefore, I, Brad Finkeldy, Mayor of the City of Moines, to hereby proclaim April 12th through 16th, 2021, as the week of the young child and commit to investments that stabilize, sustain, and support child care and early learning so that this essential workforce can continue to support children, families, and our economy through the pandemic crisis, recovery, and beyond. Thank you very much, Amy, for being here, and thank you for all you do in the entire industry. Thank you. Okay, we're now ready to move to the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There'll be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. To begin with, are there any city commissioners who would like to pull an item off the consent agenda? Seeing none, if any member of the public would like to pull an item off the consent agenda, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature, or if you're present in the um, city commission room, you can raise your hand and let Sherry know, and Sherry will call upon you. Are there any items on the consent agenda, which is just that first part of the agenda? It doesn't include the uh, work session, but anybody wants to pull? Okay. Uh, Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. Mayor, there are no um, items to pull. Mayor Fingley, thank you. Um, with no items pulled, I look for a motion. This is Commissioner Larson. I move to approve the consent agenda. Commissioner Nanda, second. Mayor Finkeldy, we have a motion by Commissioner Lawson, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkeldy? Aye. Passes five to zero. The consent agenda is approved. We are now uh, moving to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. 
As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. If you would like to make a general public comment about something not on the agenda, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. If you're on Zoom or if you're present, let Sherry know and she will call on you. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers. And I was just going to say, I don't think I've um, heard a proclamation for the National uh, Mayor's Water Challenge yet for this month. And I was, I mean, I think it's too late to be doing much about it now, but just reading about it, it sounds like. Um, the top five cities that one like a charity will receive a car that as part of what the winner gets it just seems like it's something that we'd have a chance to win at if we actually put in some effort i was just thinking next year i hopefully like the whoever's mayor at that time makes a an announcement early on in the month and I'm thinking, what if um, you dressed up like Recyclops from The Office, like the episode where Dwight dresses up as him, and like maybe threatened to drown the citizens in their overwatered lawns if they don't start conserving water? Like something, you know, fun and unique like that, that might actually be able to get attention. And also, when it comes to proclamations, I'm hoping next next week that um, the the mayor proclaims um, April 20th as 420. Um, it's it's the holiday with some people, and I'm just saying if if Lawrence, pro, I, I'd like to see Lawrence get in early on 420 as a holiday because once it does become legal, I I could see Lawrence as having like a St. Patrick's Day type vibe. And if we can make this as the place to go for 420, that, that could bring in some dollars just for local businesses and downtown. So just something to think about. Thank you. Uh, this is Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. Is there anyone else um, uh, on Zoom that would like to make general public comment? Chad Osdale? Hello. It's me again. Pretty much the same old thing. Uh, I was wondering what the uh, difference between what your resolution uh, 7346 does uh, at less cost than the uh, 6817 of opting into PIRA. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, you want to pay for a full-time attorney that has some labor knowledge since nobody in the city does. Uh, you want to hire an investigator to investigate any uh, complaints. Uh, as far as I can tell, Peer is willing to do all of that for free. 
It's just that it would be an outside agency. And they would have something to say about the violations. And you wouldn't be able to uh, decide whether you've committed any crime or not. I have a question as to, uh, is it a crime or a violation to uh, violate city policy or violate their scoring matrix or violate the principal objective of the performance appraisal process? If none of that's a crime or a violation, what the hell is? I don't understand why the unrepresented employees have no right to any outside uh, mediation just because we're not represented by a union or by an employee group. We don't have any rights. We don't have a right to an appraisal process that we have any positive influence on. But this is ethical and fair. I hope those of you that are attorneys aren't using the same ethics here and the same moral compass that you do uh, in your law practice. We've got a review board for the police department and everybody else, but there's no outside review board for city commissioners or the city management, is there? Why is that? Is it that you're better than everybody else and there's no way you could do anything slightly illegal or unethical? And if you did, you want to hire your own attorney and your own investigator to investigate then report to you so you can discipline yourselves. I mean, if you don't need anybody to police you Mayor. or have oversight over you, since the citizens are the city, I guess we can save a hell of a lot of money. Do away with the police department. We don't need policing. We Chad, don't need oversight. Thank the you. citizens and the business owners in town, they don't need to follow uh, labor law. They're better than that because we're the city, just like thank, you. Thank you, Chad. We don't need any oversight. Thank yeah, you, Chad. Thanks. Thanks. Any general public comment? Go, go ahead. <clears throat> okay, my name is Eric Hyde. Thank you, commissioners. You guys are all looking really uh, good tonight on camera. Um, I do want to point out real quick, um, I want to point out some compliments of all of you. So I have other time to talk about other stuff. I saw Lisa Larson when I was getting my COVID vaccine and I told her almost verbatim that I think she has very high character. Um, I also believe that Stuart Boley has high character and um, Brad Finkeldye, Mayor Brad Finkeldye has high character. I also greatly respect Jennifer Ananda, the former mayor of Lawrence. I know she is trying to help women and people with gender issues greatly, and I respect her for that. I also greatly respect Courtney Shipley. I hope I'm not mistaken, but I think she is Native American, at least somewhat. You're not? I don't know. Anyway, 
I know that she supported the, uh, the rock stuff with the Cod Nation, and I want to thank her for that. Okay, and now what I'm about to say is that I figured out the truth yesterday after the Cod Nation lied, uh, slandered, defamed, and libeled me on Facebook today and said things about me on Facebook today that were not true. All of them were not true. But I don't want to sue them because I respect the Cod Nation. They told me that they... This is not coming from admin. I will say that. This is not coming from the Cod Nation admin. They were respectful even though they lied to my face and lied about me behind my back. This is not coming from the Caw Nation ad administration. This is coming from other people. They said, I will not say who, because I respect them greatly, because Lawrence, Kansas messed with their lives in history. People told me they don't give an F about that rock. They said they might like to see it at the casino so people can go up and touch it and desecrate it more. But other than that, most people in the Nation don't give, an, don't give a, a booty about that rock. They don't care about it. They said, just leave it here. That's all I wanted to say about that. Thank you for listening. I still have 30 seconds left. What was I going to say? Um, yes. I would love to say this. The University of Kansas stopped me. They discriminated against me for having a Comedy Club of KU event on the 29th of this month after they approved it, after they confirmed it, because they said it's non-essential. However, it is mission essential. I'm done. Thank you. Is there anyone else that wants just general public comment not related to an agenda item? Okay. Uh, that's all the general uh, public comment, Mayor. Mayor Finkel, aye. Thank you. Um, we'll now move to our work session. Work sessions provide an opportunity for the commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission shall take no binding action on, these, on those items listed in the work session, but may refer items to staff for follow-up. When public comment is sought on a work session item, each person will be limited to three minutes for public comment. The work session tonight is to receive a presentation on the system of services supporting people experiencing homelessness. And my looks like Brandon McGuire will kick this off. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, Brandon McGuire, Assistant City Manager. Um, a couple of uh, comments here before we start. Um, Last month, uh, the city commission requested a presentation on the service providers and systems serving individuals experiencing homelessness on impacts within the city park system, impacts in the downtown area, and reports from city departments on their interactions with the public related to these issues. Um, and so we took a little bit of uh, editorial liberty um, based on that direction from the commission or that request from the commission um, and developed the presentation uh, that, that um, you'll receive this evening. I've invited several um, several uh, technicians and administrators and leaders from um, some of our partner agencies, and they're on the call. I will introduce them as they uh, begin their portion of the presentation. Um, I will advise that it is oh, it is going to be a longer presentation, um, probably north of an hour. Um, but this is a very 
a very broad topic um, with uh, that that affects many you know many people in many parts of our organization and in the community. So uh, we look forward to the opportunity to really um, dig into the the uh, topic in in greater detail as we go through the presentation um, with our partner agencies tonight. If we're successful with this presentation, uh, then we're going to be able to provide you leave you with a um, sort of high-level um, information about homelessness in the downtown uh, neighborhood in our city parks and recreation properties and um, a little bit about how, how it impacts our city operations and how our city operations interact with um, people who are affected by homelessness, either by experiencing it um, or by, uh, uh, by proximity to people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, the second goal for the presentation is to provide an orientation about the system serving people experiencing homelessness. Um, I've had the privilege to get, get in about an, an inch deep mile wide um, in this area over the last several months um, and appreciate the city manager's support um, for, for that opportunity to, to do so and appreciate several of the people joining us for the presentation, helping to orient me. Um, and, and the more I learn, the more I realize uh, there, there's a lot to learn, a lot more to learn. Um, it, is a, it is a complex system. Um, and so we're gonna start um, from essentially the top uh, down tonight and, and work our way down to our regional and local level. Um, and I hope to provide a, a higher level, but a good um, useful orientation to the actual system, uh, the formal systems that are in place to serve people experiencing homelessness. Um, and then finally, uh, we'll, we'll book in the presentation with a little bit of discussion, uh, no expectations for um, direction, uh, but some discussion about um, city and county cooperation. And uh, some of the things that uh, my counterpart, Assistant County Administrator Jill Jolicoeur and myself have been uh, discussing and working on, as well as I think the, the um, city uh, manager and county administrator. And so this, uh, we hope this kind of dovetails nicely with the previous city county uh, governing body joint um, study session uh, a, a couple of weeks ago and uh, picks up on that conversation and gives us um, a little bit of direction moving forward that we can come back to you um, at a later date with some uh, some more firm action. Um, and so we'll work towards that uh, based on uh, those, those points at the end of the presentation this evening. Um, I am joined, like I said, by several professional staff and service providers uh, working each day to improve the lives of community members affected by homelessness. Um, I can say these are super sharp thinkers. You know many of them probably um, personally and professionally. And they pour their hearts and souls into this work every day. Uh, this really is just a drop in the bucket of the information that they can provide and the technical expertise. Um, I also want to acknowledge that there are many others who care tremendously about this issue um, and about the people who are affected by homelessness. Um, and I, we could only we could only have so long of a presentation with so many people. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people who engage us, um, engage the city commission and the city staff um, every week and, and quite honestly every day um, around around these issues. Uh, so I do want to acknowledge that there there are voices that aren't at the table this evening. Um, most notably, um, unless we have members of the public joining for public comment, uh, most notably um, people with current lived experience um, with homelessness. And so we're speaking on, on behalf of those people and I hope that we can do a good, a good job of um, providing some, some honest representation. 
Um, so like I said, we have a long uh, presentation. This is a study session format. Um, and so I do encourage the commissioners to jump in with questions as each of the presenters goes through um, the presentation. So uh, first off, I'm going to start by sharing my screen. Okay, and you should be seeing my PowerPoint. So the presentation contents, uh, we're gonna start by reviewing camping and park hours. Um, and that's just a very brief um, reminder of the ordinance structure that we're working with when it comes to camping. Uh, Sally Zagrai will join us to um, provide some perspective from the downtown community and DLI. Uh, we'll then talk about interactions with city operations and a few of our departments uh, will be represented, including police, firemen, and parks and rec. Um, I, I will say I've encouraged our city staff to keep their comments as brief and concise as possible, just in the interest of time so that we can make space for um, the discussion with our service providers later on. Um, so if you have any questions or feel like uh, they've, they've missed any information that you'd like to know, please jump in before we move on. Uh, the fourth item in the agenda is um, a presentation from the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition. Uh, and then we will move down to our regional level um, and talk about the Douglas County Coordinated Entry System and the local continuum of care. Uh, then we'll talk um, about the Built for Zero methodology and, and the ongoing work um, to evaluate and work on system improvements and policies through uh, the Built for Zero approach. Uh, then we'll move to evidence-based supportive programming, um, specifically housing first, uh, and um, some of the uh, capacity that's in place currently and in, in the work that's being done to enhance capacity uh, um, with, with using that, that um, service uh, methodology. And then we'll talk about, uh, we'll hear a little bit about some immediate near-term near needs um, just kind of thinking ahead to uh, potentially some of the budget conversations uh, that we may have later on this year or this spring. Um, and then finally, like I said, we'll end with a little bit of discussion about um, policy considerations and how the city and county uh, are and can continue um, coordinating uh, better in, in this space. Any questions before we begin? either got to be quick with a mute button or I'm going to move on. So um, so first up, uh, Assistant City Attorney Maria Garcia to discuss camping and park hours. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Assistant City Attorney Maria Garcia here to provide you with a general overview of two ordinances that are relevant to tonight's discussion. The first is illegal camping under section 14-417 of our city code. It prohibits camping in three places, and that includes the public right-of-way, public property located within the area of the city zoned CD and private property without the consent of the property's owner. Um, this ordinance was amended last summer in 2020 to provide for an exception for camping on public property in the CD district when there is no overnight shelter available. And the reason for that amendment was to bring the city's ordinance um, uh, 
up to speed or compliant with some federal case law that had come out on this topic um, so that our ordinance is now consistent with that federal case law. Specifically, we had discussed at that meeting a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision captioned Martin versus City of Boise, Idaho, in which the federal court stated that um, a local ordinance that prohibited sleeping in public places and prohibited any person from using public property as a place of dwelling, lodging, or residence was invalid. The court held that the ordinance violated the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment when it imposed criminal sanctions when no alternative shelter is available. And although um, Kansas is in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Tenth Circuit would likely look at that Ninth Circuit um, decision as persuasive authority when considering any similar challenge here in our jurisdiction. So that was the reason for that recent amendment. Next slide, please. Um, the the um, second ordinance that's relevant is the ordinance concerning park hours, and that is found in section 15-208 of our city code, and that was last amendment amended in 1988. This ordinance sets out the um, park hours, stating generally that parks are open from 6 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. There is an exception for Bircham Park, which has slightly different hours, and that is from 5 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. Um, for your information, public parks are zoned OS, which is open space and not CD. And so the camping ordinance that I had mentioned first does not apply directly to the parks. And then finally, the city does have a policy on uh, cleaning up sites. If a site needs to be cleaned, the city will post um, a 24-hour notice. Property, Any property that is collected is held for at least 30 days so that it can be claimed and retrieved. And this notice requirement and the requirement that the city hold property for a period of time were implemented to provide reasonable notice prior to taking property in an effort to protect the due process rights of property owners under the 14th Amendment of our U.S. Constitution, and that is an active policy. That concludes my brief overview of those two ordinances, and I will pass um, the PowerPoint to the next presenter. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Um, any, qu any questions, uh, technical questions about uh, Maria's review of the camping ordinance? All right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Sally Zagrai. Um, I've asked Sally to represent uh, the downtown perspective. I know there are many others who who engage with us um, on, a, on a weekly and even daily basis um, related to uh, the intersection of homelessness and uh, our downtown community. Um, but Sally is always a, a good go-to and I think can uh, capture some of the concerns very well. Um, and as well, uh, she's been working on a um, ambassador program that uh, I'd like her to talk about just a little bit too. So Sally. Hi everyone, um, it's good to see you. It's been a while. I hope everybody's getting- Sally, we're having a hard time hearing you. Um, we can hear you, but it's very quiet. Let's see. Is this better? Oh. How about if I have my, my, my microphone? I don't know why COVID has like challenged my technical abilities for some reason. It's ridiculous. I was saying hi to everyone. I hope um, everyone's been staying well. It's nice to see your faces and I hope everybody is either vaccinated or close to it at this point. Um, our community has done a fabulous job and continues to do so. Just so proud of them of everyone. Um, I'm really glad that Brandon asked me to be part of this discussion tonight. Um, 
we downtown has seen some changes and um, we expect to see more. Um, things are starting to pick up a little bit, which is great. And the warm weather um, is helpful with that. Um, but we do want to be part of this coalition of um, agencies and individuals and partners that are coming together to really work on a long-term um, and serious um, solution, holistic solution to this issue of homelessness in our community. And I'm very hopeful that this is one of the silver linings that we're going to see coming out of COVID, which is kind of forcing all of our attentions to be focused on issues like this and to realize, okay, we can, we can put our heads together and come up with with um, some new solutions that really will be more effective and really serve people and, um, and by serving individuals, serving our community. So as you are probably aware, the downtown district has had far less foot and vehicular traffic since the pandemic began, and especially the stay at home um, last March of 2020. Um, we have seen a noticeable increase in the number of unsheltered individuals. They're seeking food, shelter, critical services, and they're panhandling in the downtown area over the last year. Um, I'm the coordinator for the Downtown Business Association, and as such, um, I hear in our office gets a lot of um, um, contacts. We hear um, concerns. We hear um, we get questions. Uh, we are asked, you know, what are procedures and policies that are um, related to the city, um, whether it's zoning or code, or you know, what are the what are the um, for instance, the camping um, requirements, et cetera, that uh, changed last last year that Maria just took us through, um, what happens in a normal, at a normal time, et cetera. So we're the standing, sounding board. And then of course, we're a stakeholder in, in all of these um, downtown business concerns. So we address most of the concerns by coordinating via the business association. Um, we work closely with a lot of city departments and of course, other third parties. And um, since this has begun, the, the pandemic, the stay at home and the the regulations that are in place because of public health concerns, we actually have been dedicating quite a bit more services um, to these issues. So we tried to estimate, you know, it's it's kind of hard um, to to put true numbers, but we we have found our communications and our efforts to coordinate with city services, um, for instance, regarding cleanliness issues downtown, and that's you know that's trash and um, other things that are left behind, um, and other concerns. Um, left behind by individuals who might be downtown during the day or overnight um, has increased by 50%. I, I have been working with Lawrence Parks and Rec, um, getting extra trash pickup on Mass Street, for instance, and um, trying to identify some areas that really need more attention. Um, and they've been, of course, they're always terrific to work with. I, I appreciate them very much. Um, our communications regarding health and safety issues has increased at least by 50%. We do have um, business owner, not only owners, but employees who um, have had some encounters that where they're not feeling safe or they're feeling that they can't um, maybe park in their normal garage spaces or, you know, they would like somebody to accompany them to a car just because they're, um, 
there have been more people staying overnight and um, so just wanting to maybe have a buddy system, that kind of thing. And then um, communications regarding mental health issues uh, downtown. When we are seeing more folks um, spending more time downtown and we are seeing new faces as a result, I'm assuming partly from, you know, unemployment, from evictions, from um, things of that nature related to the pandemic, we are seeing um, a variety of behaviors and what, um, in some cases that do require, you know, calls to either non-emergency dispatch or to 911 when individuals are clearly in distress and perhaps they're um, walking out into traffic or, you know, blocking um, sidewalk or blocking entrance to um, a business or building. And we wanna make sure that um, people are kept safe and that the resources that are available are offered to them. Um, they may not avail themselves of those resources right away, but we do wanna make sure that, that they are made aware and that someone who is trained to, to make that contact is involved. Um, and we have had some good um, results with that, with um, Burt Nash Homeless Outreach, and also with our um, our mental health our trained um, police officers over the last year. So we have taken notice that uh, the presence of more individuals that appear to be homeless and or transient downtown, um, we do believe there's a compassionate and reasonable means to address the issues of homelessness in the downtown district. Starting three years ago, DLI has sought funding for a downtown diplomats program um, that would employ dedicated staff to assist and serve downtown visitors. Um, and the proposal is based on the downtown Kansas City, Missouri ambassador program, which has had great success over the past 15 years. And that works in their five uh, CIDs or community improvement districts. And they've been very supportive of, of us, of DLI, and um, made all kinds of resources available to us. Um, while the program is designed to provide assistance to all visitors downtown, one compete excuse me, one key component of our version of the prog program is coordination and collaboration with Bird Nash and local agencies that provide critical services to those in need. We believe that this program could help to address the issues facing downtown. Um, similar to the Downtown Diplomats Program, which includes, um, so if any of some of the commissioners may remember, we've talked about this program over several years. Um, there are essentially a um, couple of different um, positions involved in it. So there's a, a maintenance staff that helps with daily cleanliness, you know, trash pickup, identifying graffiti, maybe cleaning it up, shoveling the, the crosswalks, the ADA ramps, um, the areas near the um, parking meters between the parking meters and um, kind of the middle of the sidewalk that I'll, I will say a lot of business owners don't necessarily <laughs> pay a lot of attention to that. Um, also having, um, so they would, they would address that. Their customer service staff helps visitors um, with parking, with directions, recommendations. Oh, you're in town for the football game. You know, where's the best pizza? Or, you know, I like Chinese food. Or, hey, is the museum open? That kind of thing. Um, they also are um, able to distribute resource information 
to some of our um, unsheltered or transient guests. Um, that's what they do in Kansas City. They'll have a resource. Um, there's a booklet or like a card and they can say, hey, it looks like maybe you do you need some services. We can um, here's all the places that you can go. This is where you can go to get, you know, help with with food, with clothing. Here's, you know, mental health, um, uh, health care. Um, those types of, of um, services. And then um, it's also just feet on the street in terms of uh, folks on patrol who are um, able to not only keep an eye on the physical plant of downtown, you know, hey, there's a huge crack in the sidewalk here, somebody tripped, or this curb is crumbling, or this planner box, everything died. If you got, you know, if Parks and Rec hadn't seen it yet, to also um, keeping an eye, as I said, on like the graffiti or just if they're noticing people who are there all the time who look like they need assistance. Um, then, so that's kind of the overview of the diplomats program. And we had a little bit of that pilot program through the um, parking enforcement staff this summer. Um, and it was fantastic. And um, we would love to see more of it. It's just also very welcoming to anybody who's visiting downtown, whether you've been there your whole life or whether you're um, brand new and you're not sure where to go in town. Um, so similar to the diplomats program, we know several local agencies have been engaged in an ongoing discussion of a navigator program that would be supported by community development block grant funds. And our board, our DLI board, received a report about this program at our recent meeting. We strongly believe that this program aligns with one of the crucial aspects of the ambassador program or diplomat program by providing a dedicated resource referral and mental health services for downtown and other key areas of the city. To the extent that this program could help address a key issue facing downtown, uh, the DLI board supports that proposed program. So I know it's it's still under development. It's not not yet ready to be discussed fully, but um, from what we're hearing it here, it sounds like something that could work very well. And we strongly believe that the implementation of the Burt Nash component of that program could address a lot of the issues that are associated with the homeless presence in the downtown district. Um, and this is a more holistic community-based solution um, that would employ, again, dedicated trained staff to interact with the wide variety of folks who are downtown, whether that's residents, business owners, guests, um, uh, and, and folks who maybe are unsheltered and trying to access services. Um, as we, we, we want to be more getting the community involved rather than relying on a law enforcement presence, which, you know, has a lot of other unwanted um, side effects. So, so we see that um, if there was a homeless outreach, um, that would be, could address more specifically um, mental health issues, you know, folks who are trained to reach out and then say, hey, what is it that you need? Why are you here? How can we get you to a better place and get you the services that we need? Um, and that also helps with maybe de-escalating situations that could um, currently result in calls to dispatch, um, which I think everybody would like to avoid. We would like to be coming from a place of of 
helping and being really um, effective rather than um, just reactive. We want to be proactive. So that's the basic overview of kind of what we would see happening or we'd like to see. Thank you, Sally. Mm -hmm. Questions for Sally before we move to city staff? Brandon, Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, I, might, I, I may ask this question of some other people too. Um, um, Sally, I, I, I know that many of us have experienced or are aware that there's kind of a subgroup of people that travel here maybe for a couple months, they might kind of be backpackers or have a bike, um, maybe sort of between couch surfing and just kind of camping. They're not necessarily in crisis. Um, they just kind of visit here for a couple months out of the year. And, and they're also um, all over the town. Um, and I, I, I think sometimes people get them confused with our other population of people who are in some kind of crisis. Um, could, do you have any kind of guess? I know you're extremely experienced um, with everyone downtown. Do you have any guess, um, like how many people that might be per year? You know, I would say it's probably, and, and um, I'm trying to think if Derek Rogers or Mitch Young from Parks and Rec might have a different idea. But I would venture to guess it's 100 or fewer. I mean, it could be, it just depends on the year, right? So obviously last year, 2020 was a very strange year. Um, we call the, I mean, I call them train hoppers um, because a lot of them are uh, the folks that we've seen usually with the big backpacks and uh, um, are getting here on the train and they're traveling all over, maybe following the warm weather, weather that kind of thing. So. Um, you know, probably four or five years ago, we had a lot of them who came through and they often will come in May and then they'll usually leave towards the end of July, maybe even sooner, like maybe about two months. Um, and then we we had a couple of years where they actually stayed quite a bit longer. Um, and then maybe two years ago, we didn't see nearly as many. And I don't know what the reasoning for that is. Um, I would say that when I've had conversations with our patrol captain, for instance, um, who are uh, from Lawrence Police, um, you know, there are um, those, there are some repeat visitors, customers um, among that group as well. And um, what sometimes happens is they they do need resources in terms of you know where can i be fed or i mean i guess they would need to know where they could camp or stay if there were room i don't know that those are those are really aren't the clients um, for the lawrence community shelter for instance but maybe they would go to the dare center the drop-in and they need to make phone calls and do their laundry and shower that kind of thing so um, they do need some services i would say um, but they are a they're not necessarily a large group it and year to year they'll stay for different lengths of time, but it's usually for a few months. Did that answer your 
<laughs> what you're yes, trying to find out. Yes, thank you very much. Uh -huh. I, I I just mean um, I think um, to distinguish their needs a little bit, uh, uh -huh. and um, it it also seems like at this time where it seems like there's more people than there have been in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure they may not be part of that population right now. I, um, I would, I yeah, it could be. I would say um, when I'm downtown, I'm seeing a lot of the same faces. Now, what, what I noticed was about a year ago, we saw a bunch of new faces who are still here now. I would say it's probably not quite time for that, that group to come just because of the weather. I do think it's a lot of the, their travel is weather-based. Um, and I will also say that a lot of those, um, those individuals will panhandle. Um, like they will immediately come in and then they kind of stake out different areas and they will panhandle quite intensively. Whereas um, quite a few of our regular folks um yes they panhandle but they're not um sometimes that's an um kind of an as an aside you know they are uh more focused on other behaviors i would say like that yes they're trying to get money but they're maybe more more enmeshed in oh, definitely some some serious mental health and perhaps addiction crises so they'll have a sign out, but they're kind of wandering around too. Okay, thank you, Sally. Thanks. So um, transitioning to uh, some perspective from our city staff, I've asked uh, Derek Rogers from uh, our director of Parks and Recreation, uh, Lieutenant Ryan Halstead from Lawrence PD, and uh, uh, Division Chief Kevin Joles from Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical to join us. Um, they'll keep their comments very brief. So I'll, like I said, if there's any additional information you wanna pull out of them, uh, please do so before we move on. Um, Derek, you're up first. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, Derek Rogers, Department Director, uh, Parks and Recreation. Just wanted to start off with uh, camping for the unsheltered homeless should be a temporary and emergency situation. And from our perspective, from the department, we want to see everyone housed on a pathway to better lifestyle and not living in a park. Uh, background on how we post and clean up a little bit. Uh, Maria did a, a great job of explaining how we do that. How we address a tent or a campsite for clean or need to be removed is we do a risk assessment. Um, and when we look at the risk assessment, we look at the safety of the campers um, and the public, infrastructure concerns if it was under a bridge, um, environmental and or and or um, sanitation concerns. A high use open space park area will see a higher level of attention from the department and a low use wooded area of a, of a park. Sometimes the decision is very straightforward um, on we need to address this issue. It could be uh, the high use open space park area, proximity to schools or playgrounds. Other times it's based on uh, multiple communications with residents of the neighborhood, the fire department, the Burt Nash homeless outreach team, 
uh, Lawrence Police Department and Park staff to develop a recommendation for review by the city manager's office. Um, right up front, uh, the Parks and Recreation staff is not resourced or trained to specifically address homeless issues in our parks and we prioritize our resources along with our other resources and, and uh, jobs that we take care of our parks and, and our facilities with addressing the multiple campsites in our parks. Observation, and, and Sally kind of alluded to this earlier, last year during the pandemic, we noticed we had more homeless um, staying in our parks, but in fewer numbers in those locations. And it was touching more of our shelters, our parks, and around the city. What we're seeing this year is we're seeing fewer locations at last count. I just did a quick search this morning of our data and it was in 10 locations. But what we're seeing is a, um, a larger gathering of the folks that are camping outdoors. Ideally, we've tried to address with our existing resources when we clean around a camp or um, move a camp as we deal with the homeless in our parks to no more than once a week based on our resources. We're just not staffed that way. Cleanups are a big, big impact on our staff, both physically and also uh, it's, it's a mental um, issue with our staff. Uh, it's, it's not the, what they enjoy doing, obviously. A, a good example of how much this resources it takes from our department, uh, two or three weeks ago, we cleaned around or moving five campsites in three different locations of the city is using about 25 staff for accumulation of 83 hours. And so each week, it, as we address some of these, as, as the concerns pop up, it takes quite a bit of energy and resources from our staff to uh, address the issues that are, are going on. We could have a, a homeless engagement team of four people I keep them busy all week long, every week. We just don't have the resources available at the time. Recommendations from our department on whether we post or not goes to the city manager's office for review. Once a uh, decision is made, we're going to move or clean around a camp. We get the uh, homeless outreach team, Burt Nash involved, our staff get involved, go out and we communicate with the campers. One of the things that, um, comments we received feedback from the campers in Watson Park a few weeks ago was, I think they thought they were in the central business or central district the CD zone space. <clears throat> and so that was at educating the folks on, you can't camp in our parks, it is against our ordinance. And it's just that initial communication has led to a good relationship, I think overall between our staff and the Burt Nash group, that it helps when we do post and we say later this week, we're gonna to have to post the camp to clean around your camp or have you move while we do this, or you need to move from this location, that they're not surprised and it gives them some time to look at options. Uh, a few general comments. Uh, one, last year during the pandemic, the CDC's recommendation, which is still in effect, is to limit the moving of homeless camps and campers. The other thing, when we do move um, and, our, and we interact with camps, it increases the stress and, and tension within those camps. It also leads to um, conflict among those campers in that area and arguments. Um, the other thing that uh, 
we need to pass on is when people are camping in our parks and it may just be for two or three weeks, it has an environmental impact on that location, whether it's in the woods or, or in open space of grass, it negatively impacts the environment and the natural resources. And then just in closing, just wanted to say that uh, we want to see everybody on a pathway to housing and not living in the outdoors. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Uh, DC Joels. Uh, good evening, um, Division Chief Kevin Joels with Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical. And I just wanted to uh, first out um, talking about our community partnerships that we've been able to um, uh, enhance over the last um, few months. You know, we've, we've always had good partnerships with the city and county groups throughout the community, but it's always better to, to, to know um, familiar faces and be able to have work groups that seems like we're always together, especially over Zoom. Um, it would be better in person, of course, but I just want to start out by, um, you know, praising the collaborative efforts of all the um, partnerships um, and uh, everything that's gone into the committees and the work groups that involve not only LDCFM and, and law enforcement, but the city and county and some private entities as well. Um, it's been the intention of each entity throughout all of these work groups and, um, and program committees um, to do the best, um, prov provide the best service um, that we can um, to our citizens, regardless of their uh, demographic, uh, demographic, especially um, on where they live or, or don't. Um, regardless of social status, and, and of course, you know, I, I have a lot of logos on this slide in particular, and I hope that I don't offend anybody by leaving them out, but there's only so much space, but there's there's plenty of other resources that um, that we connect connect with um, on a weekly basis. Um, one in particular is Douglas County MyRC or My Resource Connection. Um, we provide some surveillance data um, on a regular basis, which is daily um, data that goes into this My Resource Connection and provides our emergency medical response in a HIPAA protected private way that only agencies that have the ability to, um, that have mutual clients are able to see. And what that does is it, it connects um, those resources for um, anybody who um, is in a behavioral crisis um, or an addiction recovery service or a clinical care group. Um, it lets them know that we have maybe visited them or transported them to the hospital so that they can um, follow up the next day or the following day to, uh, to ensure that you know, they're, they're meeting the, um, uh, the getting the, the patient's needs are met, the patient's needs are met. Uh, another one that we're involved with, um, LDCFM is involved with, is the Mobile Crisis Response Team Work Group, which has um, been working diligently to create a program that offers crisis lines, pre and post crisis interventions, which involve an on-site team or could and could involve an on-site team supplemented by social work, law enforcement, fire and EMS, and then of course other partners. Next slide, please. So something that when, when we were reading the proclamations, um, Margaret from KU, that the statistics and mathematical um, uh, proclamation was a, made me a little nervous because un unfortunately the next slide will, will, and I don't want it to go yet, but the next slide will kind of reveal that maybe we could have done a little bit better. And somehow the slide got a little bit messed up on here, but um, as you can see the highlighted um, bold and blue there, the homeless, that's something that we've been able to add into our billing. Um, so that circle should move down a little bit. So I apologize if that got messed up. But essentially what we did is we added a tab in our homeless, uh, a, a tab that's called homeless for our billing folks that as they are going through some of the medical records, 
they can actually click on that tab so it will help um, derive a little bit better data. Uh, next slide, please. And so, um, unfortunately, um, this is what I think Margaret would be disappointed in is, is we don't have really good customer data um, or patient data in regards to the homeless. We do have um, we do have a lot of demographic information if we needed to know know that. We know if we run particular locations a lot, but the, the inconsistencies with homeless is we may just get a seventh in Vermont call or a um, 10th in Louisiana call, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's where that person lives. And when we leave that information blank in our patient care record, we have a hard time going back and mining that data. Um, so no home address leaves blank spaces in a query-enabled search, and that's within our patient care record or our um, records management system. And then also, we've been able to reach out to the National Emergency Medical Services Information System, or NEMSIS, which is what controls what we have to put into our patient care records. And we've um, submitted a request that we can have homeless be a demographic um, click button. Uh, that is something that's probably gonna be achievable. Um, one of two reasons is Austin, Texas has a high homeless um, population and um, some of the people that sit on the, that NEMSIS board actually live in Austin. And when we presented that to them, they kind of scratched their head and said, why haven't we done that sooner? So hopefully, um, Lawrence and, and Douglas County can be on the forefront of getting something added to um, uh, the NEMSIS um, system. Uh, next slide, please. So just some numbers that we were able to derive because we do know some specific locations. Over the last three years, starting in 2018 specifically, we ran um, 118 patients at the Lawrence Community Shelter, then 121. And then last year was about half of that. Um, that was because of reduced um, uh, occupancy that um, due to the pandemic, obviously for social distancing um, regulations. So we didn't run as many calls there, but it never stopped uh, regardless. And then uh, of course, other locations that we um, see some of the homeless, homeless population would be the Lawrence Public Library, downtown streets and alleys, uh, public parks and river and walking trails. Uh, we see some um, as well right behind station one downtown at 746 Kentucky in the parking garage as well. And we've been we've sat on a few committees um, as well to discuss what we can do to um, aid those folks that uh, seek shelter in the parking garage. Next slide, please. On the fire side of things, there's incendiary fires and accidental fires and incendiary fires and intentionally set fire. And with with those, um, it'd be fair to say that we responded to um, multiple fires in the um, uh, in and around campsites, in or near city parks within the city. Um, the cause classifications range from accidental, incendiary, and un undetermined. Uh, property damage from the fires range in grass, rubbish, tarps, personal belongings, and, and vehicles. Um, with, with some of the collaborations, we've had LDCFM, um, along with Parks and Rec, Burt Nash, and um, Lawrence PD, have visited some of these campgrounds and tent cities. And during these visits, they've um, been able to witness a lot of unsafe practices um, and um, unhealthy living conditions. And within these visits, they're able to deliver some safety education. Um, they actually had witnessed somebody, uh, you know, there's more than one person in these tents sometimes. Um, somebody had um, left something burning. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure what it was, but they left something burning and that tent was just filling up with smoke and they were able to kind of knock on the tent door or shake the tent a little bit and wake somebody up and get them out of there before they may have expired due to smoke or um, carbon monoxide um, inhalation. 
And then of course, when we're on calls, um, we if we see an opportunity to help somebody out um, through Parks and Rec, and I'm not exactly 100% sure um, exactly how they obtain them, but Parks and Rec have these things called bivy bags or bivy tents. And they're essentially just a portable uh, non-structured tent that can keep um, somebody that's in frigid temperature, temperatures warm. And uh, so we passed the, several of those out. I think we're probably around the 50 mark. Of course, with temperatures warming up, we don't pass them out as often, but we'll keep those for next year. Uh, that concludes, I believe, yep, concludes anything I have, if anybody has any questions. Thank you, Chief Jules. Uh, Lieutenant Ryan Halstead, um, some last comments from the city staff perspective, please. Yes, thank you, uh, Mayor Finkelstein, commissioners, for allowing me to uh, take a few minutes of your time. I wanted to uh, echo what Chief Jules um, talked about with the mobile access response team work group that we've been working with for approximately about eight months. I see um, Kevin on about every Zoom meeting I have um, for the last year or so, um, as well as with the CIT Council, um, which uh, coordinates our um, training for our officers for um, becoming CIT officers and having that CIT training, uh, which we've been doing since 2015. Um, one of the other things that we talk about a lot, and I've talked to you as the commission before, about our mental health team. We have one officer assigned directly with a co-responder, uh, which is a master's level therapist uh, that goes out to calls that uh, um, have some sort of behavioral health or addiction uh, services that are needed um, and uh, that have a law enforcement nexus to it. And so that we can try to get um, that person into some sort of services. Um, sometimes they're willing, sometimes they're not. Um, so that always throws a wrinkle in the, in the whole mix. Um, but they also serve the entire city, not just uh, our transient population. So uh, they're busy from um, the day they, or the time they come to work to the time they go home um, and, and every day that they're here. So those are some of the things that we've been working on uh, as a department. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate the time. Thank you, Lieutenant. Um, so that concludes um, the comments from our city st staff perspective, uh, just providing what we hope is a little bit of an orient orientation about some of the ways that our um, employees, city employees, uh, especially in the public safety world and in our uh, parks and rec operations um, engage every day. I will say, um, you know, there's not a day that goes by that there is not interaction on this issue, either directly with people experiencing homelessness or with uh, community members who are concerned about people who are experiencing homelessness. And so uh, it is it, it is um, something that is constantly on our minds and uh, working with many of the other um, partner agencies on how we, uh, how we improve and enhance the systems uh, that provide support is is really a topic of discussion um, in in many conversations that we have among the staff, um, those on this call and and others. And so that's why we thought it would be a good transition um, at this point to uh, talk about the the system of supportive services. Uh, but before we do that, um, any questions from the commissioners for our staff members on the call? Okay, thank you. So transitioning into the next part of the presentation, uh, we are joined by um, Shanae Egert and um, uh, Don Myers. Um, Shanae is the Director of Housing and Coordinate 
Director of Housing and Coordinated Entry System, uh, and Don Myers is the Director of Programs, and they work for an organization uh, of which we are served by um, called the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition. Uh, I, I want to start um, with Shanae and with Don uh, providing um, really uh, kind of that highest level of organization, um, so to speak, in, in terms of the system of service providers uh, working in this space. And so, uh, Shanae or, or Don, uh, please feel free to jump in and take over for the next couple slides. I will gladly. Um, I am Don Myers, the Director of Programs, uh, and I'm going to get a very high-level overview. I think Brendan kind of nailed it with, we're going to have a few slides because I could probably take two hours alone and not even touch uh, what services we have, what, what supports we offer. Um, but I do want to offer you a general understanding because sometimes I think we believe we understand we have a, a, a nugget of knowledge, but not necessarily a nugget of understanding, if that makes sense. So I'm going to give you some very high level, uh, and then it's probably easier to answer questions and kind of try to gauge where everyone understands or doesn't. And Shanae is going to jump in and kind of help me explain and uh, share with you what we, how we view our continuum of care. So I'm going to give you a very high, simplistic is probably the best word to say of what a continuum of care is. Um, our COC recently adopted our continuum of care as the membership, which is our communities, the agencies we serve, um, all of those who we collectively uh, work together with to solve or address homelessness. In fact, a continuum of care is in HUD's terms and in our uh, daily duties of addressing homelessness is a planning body or a collective effort to address homelessness, to provide services and support to those who are either experiencing homelessness or in, are in danger of becoming homeless. Um, that is oversimplifying it. However, the continuum of care is essentially uh, all of us working together in our communities, the resources that does include our governing bodies, it includes the agencies, HUD funded, there's various funding streams. Um, and so to us, we do believe that housing is a basic human, human right. Um, and our mission is to end homelessness for all families and individuals through the 101 counties of the Kansas Balance of State Continuum of Care through providing leadership, coordination of services and support partnerships and research our resource navigation. All of those are absolutely in imperative for us to make a impact or to, I always like to say, move the, you know, move the, um, the pendulum at all to not just get someone into housing, but to keep them there, to stabilize them. Um, Brennan, if you don't mind, we'll go on to the next one. Um, and we refer to this often as wraparound services because handing someone uh, a unit to live in is not necessarily solving the problem. There are mitigating factors that got them there, that has kept them there, that has kept them from moving from being homeless into housing. And so a wraparound approach typically is an approach to not just identify their need, uh, put them into housing, but provide wraparound. Sometimes that's identification to obtain housing. It is employment. Um, there's various different, there's so many different complex factors that come into it. And so a COC, a high functioning 
you can have a variety of levels. I like to refer to a high-functioning COC as a continuum of care that involves not only those of us who do direct social services, but a community of care, which means different aspects, different viewpoints. And I think, and I congratulate all of you on having a conversation tonight, not just about those of us who are providing social services, but different aspects, different points of view, so that so that the approach to the solution is a collective one. Um, and it does, it does allow you to address all the complexities from different angles. So our goal is to make sure that as we go forward as a continuum, we are involving businesses, advocates, public housing, school districts, we're, you know, McKinney Vento, social service, mental health providers, as we all are, I think, becoming more and more aware of it and embedded in mental health issues and services and the challenge that that brings into addressing homelessness. Uh, and I'm gonna go very quickly to be very mindful of everyone's time. So I'm more than glad to pause and get a little deeper. So the Kansas Balance of State Continuum of Care uh, is recently, I'm gonna give you a very quick history lesson. The COC historically for the Balance of State, and the Balance of State means that we have all 101 counties of Kansas, which excludes Wichita, Sedgwick County, Topeka, Shawnee County, Johnson County, and then Wyandotte and Jackson County. So essentially, if you remove all of the urban or urban-esque areas, any of the rural uh, or frontier counties are encompassed within that balance of state. So it's kind of like these four urban areas created their own COC within that county or area, and then everything else is collectively called the balance of state. So historically, to make sure when HUD mandated that to receive HUD funding, you, you had to create this continuum of care, uh, 501c3 to be the fiscal sponsor and submit an application. So to ensure all 101 counties, a, uh, I believe it was in 2005, the balance of state began or created its own 501c3 to meet HUD's guidance. And at that time, the continuum of care and the collaborative applicant, which is also the nonprofit fiscal sponsor, were essentially one. And uh, best practice says that, that the membership should be the COC, and that's all of your communities, all of those addressing homelessness are a membership. And then the collaborative applicant is basically your contractor, your agency, your fiscal sponsor. Uh, and so in the last year, we have basically advanced the original membership plus 501c3 board, and we became two entities. So we now are the membership organization that'll have a steering committee, and then Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, which is now a fiscal sponsor with our own board and our own organization, is the collaborative applicant. That collaborative applicant is kind of, I like to minimize it and call it, we are the gatekeepers of the continuum of care. That means we make sure that the membership and the agencies and the funding and the compliance and resources, we kind of keep the wheels greased and all of the parts moving and connecting. Um, and we are working very hard to advance um, those efforts. You know, it's always a growing process. And as we're facing some real specific challenges right now. We're getting very creative. Um, and Brandon, if you go on to the next one for me. Um, so as 
as a collaborative applicant in our own 501c3, our mission is to be a catalyst for safe, appropriate, and affordable housing for Kansans, Kansans in collaboration with local, state, and national partners. So again, we're getting back to collaboration, a coordination, partnerships, and wraparound services. Um, and I did kind of cover the, got a little ahead of myself on which counties are excluded, but real easy to keep track is the urban areas we're outside of, so all of the smaller counties, uh, even though some of them aren't so small. Brandon, you can go on to the next one for me. As I kind of indicated, this Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, we are the collaborative applicant. Uh, and again, it kind of goes back to, we are the ones who collect, report, uh, provide services, gatekeeper and grant writer, fund solicitor, kind of the hub. Uh, I per personally prefer the heart, but I think the membership might argue that they too are the heart of, the, um, of our efforts. Uh, essentially in HUD terms, the collaborative applicant is the one who collects and submits the reporting, the applications, the distribution of funds, the recommendation. We go through a rank and review process each year of all of our organizations and what they propose to do, how they propose to use HUD funding, and we do oversee that. Uh, we also have a data system, which is the Homeless Management Information System that HUD mandates that we use. Um, so Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, not to be confused with the Kansas Balance of State, we, are, we do provide the system admin and house that information system, as well as do data mining, extraction, reporting, um, any of the compliance factors for HUD. We are also moving in the, in the uh, direction of using that data mining to also determine how best to use our fund, our, our funding that we receive from HUD and other sources. We coordinate a lot with the Emergency Solutions Grant that is distributed by Kansas Housing, um, Kansas Housing Resources. And uh, you will see a lot more collaboration of that. And that really kind of comes, touches into Lawrence and Douglas County. And that's where you see a lot of coordination between us as the COC and the collaborative applicant and uh, partners like uh, Bert Nash um, as recipients because they we are ESG and COC funded, Bert Nash is as well. And so we try to organize and align our efforts with our community partners. Uh, we are also a recipient of a coordinated entry grant that allows us to ensure that those who have higher needs or higher vulnerability, vulnerabilities uh, receive services first and are prioritized based on that. And I'm gonna, before we go on, I'm gonna let Sinead jump in because she is the director of the coordinated entry and our housing. So I'd like to have her give you an uh, a explanation, a little overview of what coordinated entry is before we get to that on a regional level. Um, and Shanae, I saw that you're on if you wanna jump in here. Thank you, Don. Uh, yes. So the coordinated entry system in basic terms is a referral system. So we enter everybody who's experiencing homelessness or at risk for homelessness into this data system, and then we evaluate their vulnerability, which in, in basic terms is the vulnerability and the likelihood someone will die on the street. 
Um, so we look at that vulnerability, the higher the score, the more vulnerable they are to die on the street. And so we prioritize those with high scores and connect them to programs that we have in the system. Um, and we refer them to programs that they're eligible for and, um, and work with that agency to ensure that they get housed. Um, so we do have a lot of agencies in that system already. Um, and uh, for instance, Bert Nash, uh, which um, Tucker will go into a little bit later into that list of agencies that are in the system. But we manage that data system not only just to make referrals, but also to collect the data, how many people are experiencing homelessness that hit our system in, for instance, D Douglas County, um, how many people were referred and also referral results. So did that agency accept that client and get them into um, housing? Yes or no. And what does that numbers and that data look like? Um, so it's it's an overall system to coordinate referrals and also to create reports on what those referrals ended up being. Thanks, Janae. Um, Janae really is not appreciative of my very general description of coordinated entry. So I've always I've learned to let her really give the meat and bones of it. Uh, and as I indicated earlier, we really are here representing the Balanced State Continuum of Care and the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition. Even though our efforts and missions overlap, our staffing overlaps, um, and de most definitely our goals overlap, we as Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition have basically identified some larger goals based on needs that are being identified, especially um, after COVID or during COVID and um, what some of our, you know, our neighbors are running into. And I think Lawrence is really a great example of what you're experiencing, the influx and the changes and the inability to identify one resource to solve the problem. Um, so what dividing the continuum of care and the, um, our collaborative applicant or a statewide, state, Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition has allowed us to do is we, as our own 501c3 agency, were able to solicit and were awarded $2 million in emergency solutions grant funding. Um, uh, what we asked for and what we're using this funding for is essentially to fill the gaps of service. Uh, and that means should, and I'm going to localize it just for understanding, let's say our, all of our partners in Lawrence and Douglas County exhaust all of the funding sources and streams they have. And suddenly there's no more hotel motel funding or rapid rehousing or homeless prevention to keep people in their homes. We now have, a, we have $2 million in funding and now 11 staff that is available at the request of any of the agencies, county, city, anyone on a local level that can say, we are exhausted, we've exhausted these resources, we've maximized them, can you please come in? And in fact, some of the coordination that we are doing this week is working with our partners at Dirt Nash and the Lawrence Community Shelter to identify how we can come in right now and assist with coordination of the transition from uh, the community leaving the, their hotel motel program and us making sure that those who are engaged in some um, housing stability plans and housing 
uh, placement that they are in the meet in the interim stably placed into hotel motels. And so we did receive $1.2 million in hotel motel services uh, in a lot of our communities like Douglas County and Lawrence, where they're a little more, I call it urbanesque, a little more highly populated than maybe some of our frontier counties that have approximately 503 people. But uh, so that we do have that capacity and stability to offer. Uh, and not only that, just staffing. Uh, we do have the ability to to have case managers, our, our coordinated entry staff jump in and do some BS fidats and get them onto that coordinated entry list. It is a gap all the way. We want to make sure that as we, you know, and I kind of look at us like a hub and an umbrella. We're not here to do all of the work, but we're here to facilitate. Um, and adding this funding in there also allows us to not just facilitate, but when we're in, you know, a lot of frontier counties or when we're in a county of influx that you guys are being inundated with, with, with clients and people in need, that we can step in and say, hey, let us fill the gap, let us help. And that's a true collaborative effort. So as of right now, we do have um, 11 staff dedicated, of which four are case managers, Shanae, myself, three coordinated entry um, dedicated staff, but we also have a housing navigator that we are offering to anyone in any of our 101 counties to help identify um, housing options or housing stock uh, to help negotiate. That was also building a statewide resource list um, that will be available to not only our agencies, but our clients, our communities, um, which is invaluable because as flat as Kansas is, we are so siloed in what the services are. Um, and so, you know, if you're in Johnson County, that's fine. They have all, you know, 20 of their services. Same thing with the bigger counties. But when you get into 101 counties and you really are a little farther out and less populated, you don't know where to go. Some, you know, we always say call 211, but a lot of our frontier counties, they don't even have a United Way. They don't have a shelter. They don't have a food pantry. Um, our schools in some of those areas don't know who to come to if they identify a student or a family who is homeless. So. We are working on not only identifying the resources, putting them in one location for everyone to use. And that means community agencies, our governments, our first responders, whoever needs the resources, it's one click. Um, and truly creating a uh, mentality and uh, an administration of wraparound services and resources and reducing the time of identifying someone in need and getting them directed to assistance and help. Uh, and I think I will would gladly, uh, I think Shanae is laughing because she knows I will gladly get on a soapbox and talk about all of the different things that we have and what we can do for two hours. But I hope that's at least enough to give you a broad understanding of why we would like to be engaged in the conversation um, of how to come up with a solution, but also engaged in providing assistance for that solution for not only our Lawrence and Douglas County, but our all of our um, neighbors in need across the state. Thank you, Don, and thank you, Shanae. Um, I also want to just recognize um, at the end of last year when um, the City Commission authorized uh, the the budget for the 
um, what we sort of refer to as the days in shelter, but the winter winter weather shelter. Um, Shanae was right there um, offering assistance from uh, the expertise that she has and that the statewide uh, coalition has. And so uh, they are um, actually located right here in Lawrence. Um, so maybe a little bit of home field advantage there. Um, and they're certainly very familiar with our community um, in addition to being sort of an umbrella as Don described it. Any questions for Don and Shanae before we move on? Yeah, this is Commissioner Larson. And I'm, um, this is the first I've heard of this organization. So it's um, good to hear that they're here in Lawrence and, and the, it sounds like they're doing some really great, great work. I'm struggling with understanding um, if you're a part of the state. I know you said you're a 501c, um, but are you connected at all with state programs, um, grants? No, or we or no, um, to be honest, the, can, the membership and, and the coalition are both separate from the state. Um, one has a steering committee. We do get federal funding derived through HUD funds, um, which come in the form of continuum of care funding, the emergency solutions grant. We also have a current agreement with the uh, Kansas Department of Aging and Disability Services. Uh, where who also supports our efforts with some funding and staff support. Uh, so we do have different funding streams and different support, but we are not a part of any local, state, federal government entity. We are our own entity in our own collaborative effort. And one of the things, and I appreciate you pointing this out, is I don't know that we, it, we are an infantile organization compared to Johnson County and Topeka and so forth, because like I said, we only became recognized as a 501c3, I think in 2005 or six. So we were relatively you know, young in COC years. However, what is important to us and Sinead and I have really been working on this message and understanding, and this is only one of several presentations we're giving because we want to drive that knowledge and drive that support is the importance of this continuum of care. Unless you work in HUD housing, a lot of times we aren't exposed to what a COC is. However, a high functioning COC is not just those of us who are HUD funded or receive funding. It is a community-wide effort. And that's why it's so important that I share with you what we are and why we're here and how we can be a, a help and how we would like to be a part of the solution. Um, so going forward, unfortunately, you will probably ask questions and then I will be more than glad to share with you and your engagement with uh, with staff will probably be more educational than you ever wanted it. However, it will also provide us as a community, um, of not just a Lawrence Douglas community, but as a community of caring human beings to make sure that all of the resources that we have are exhausted for each and every individual that we do want to be housed and have successful um, long-term housing stability. Uh, uh, and be safe as well. So thank you. I appreciate you um, asking that because it's important to know that we are here and what we do. Yeah, great question, Commissioner Larson. Any other questions for Shanae or Don? Okay. Um, with that, uh, we're going to take it down uh, sort of to the, the regional layer. Um, and David Tucker uh, from the Burt Nash um, Homeless Outreach Team, he's actually the team lead. Uh, I've invited him to 
talk about the Douglas County Coordinated Entry System and uh, what I sort of refer to as the um, local continuum of care, right or wrong. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm David Tucker. I'm the Regional Coordinator for Douglas County within the Coordinated Entry System. And as he said, I'm also the Burt Nash Homeless Outreach Team Leader. Uh, the Coordinated Entry System is, consists of HUD-funded services, as well as the community partners of Douglas County who serve the homeless population. Uh, we meet regularly every other week to coordinate care for homeless and unsheltered individuals and families. These meetings are closed to the public. However, every quarter there is a regional meeting which is open for anyone to join to discuss any regional issues or interests that they have. Um, next slide. How we do it is using a no wrong door approach. Clients can do an assessment known as the VI SPDAT at any agency in town. And this assessment is then sent to the coordinated entry system, which ranks clients by order of vulnerability. And then it refers each client to the appropriate agency or fund which would best help them. This allows us to, uh, the community partners to meet regularly, to conference together on shared clients, or to look for support and refer clients to agencies that may have different resources that could better serve them. Uh, this extends throughout the state of Kansas, allowing different regions to coordinate the care of someone whose needs would be better met using resources located elsewhere. Um, next slide. Uh, so this is a list of the uh, members of the coordinated entry team, which meets for case conferencing and the coordination of care. And it's important to know that our, our goal of, of utilizing this system is to better understand who is in our homeless community and how best to serve them while providing equal opportunity services and reducing homelessness to an effective zero. The pandemic, uh, it's impacted the process greatly and it's increased the influx of new clients as well as impressing upon us and I believe the city, the needs for rapid rehousing and its impact on the public health. Um, that's basically a quick and dirty outline of our local coordinated entry system. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them at any time. This is Commissioner Larson. I have a quick question for you, um, David. Absolutely. Uh, with all these groups, organizations that are part of this coordinated system, do you have HIPAA issues at all? Uh, there's a form that is signed when doing the survey that says that their information will be used for coordination purposes only. Um, and, and there's no HIPAA issues with that. Um, and that's why the meetings are closed to the specific partners that work on these things. And we don't discuss coordination of care issues in the open regional meetings, which are quarterly. Uh, Commissioner Larson, thank you very much for that. Any other questions for David about how our uh, local regional uh, coordinated entry system works? Yeah, this is Mayor Finkeldyke. David, can you give us a feel for um, how, how big that list is and how it's changed over the last year or two? Sure. Um, we've, uh, we approximately have about 200 people on the list right now. Um, and in the last year or two, since late 2019, there's been over 100 people housed off of that list. Um, 
So that's a total of 300 people that we've been able to get to engage into in this system so far. And Mayor Finkelai again, they do have to fill out that form to be on that list, right? So if someone chooses not to, can, can you put them on the list? We cannot currently discuss them if they do not sign the waiver. Um, it's a pretty extensive survey. It takes about 20 minutes to do. It asks a lot of questions about, you know, uh, uh, domestic violence issues, uh, where you stayed, uh, how long you've been homeless, uh, any kind of drug or addiction issues, and it's all by self-report. Um, I do know that the uh, Homeless Coalition, we've discussed a uh, refusal list, which would not use names or any information like that to protect them, but where we might be able to try and help coordinate them through the coordinated list, but that hasn't happened uh, right now. In order to be part of coordinated entry, you need to, to fill out, or not fill out, but you need to participate in the survey and sign the release. Mayor Finkel, I think that's important for you know folks to understand. Obviously, as as you work on the homeless outreach team, just the 200, for example, approximately is not the number of homeless people in now. No, sir. It's the number of homeless people who have filled out the form, and there's others you work with through the outreach team that aren't on this coordinated entry system. It's very correct. Yes, we have a number of people who are not act, who will not will not participate in the coordinated entry system, and so we have to utilize other avenues to try and help them. It makes it more difficult to coordinate with other agencies with them for sure. Mary Finkel, I thank you for your work on that. Thank you, David. Um, for the good of your group, can you talk just a little bit briefly about um, your dual role on the homeless outreach team? Uh, organizing that team and running the coordinated entry system? Sure. Uh, it, it takes a lot of effort. It's a lot of time. Um, yeah, the uh, I'm, I'm not, when I'm not doing coordinated entry stuff, I'm uh, helping organize the team. I'm helping manage, it, manage their caseloads, uh, organizing them and coordinating them for uh, who's on call, who can respond to crisis as they, as they come up. Uh, and the best way for us, you know, and I kind of counsel them on the best way to help serve individual people with their individual issues. Um, yeah, that is a that is a full time job in and of itself. Great, thank you, and thanks for the presentation. Thank you. Any other questions on the coordinated entry system for David before we move on? Okay, Mayor. Mayor Fickledy, Brandon, you think this would be a good place to maybe take a 10 minute break and before we move on? Yes, I, I better place. Yes, I think this would be um, exactly the place I'd recommend that. I was looking ahead thinking maybe that. So why don't we take a 10 minute break and, and come back with the rest of the presentation? Mayor Fickledy, I think we're ready to come back. Um, let's see, I'll go ahead and do roll call. Vice Mayor Shipley? Here. Commissioner Ananda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkeldy, I'm back as well. And uh, Brandon, we'll turn back over to you to keep the presentation rolling. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We are um, a little bit over halfway done, so we'll, we'll uh, get through this next piece.
piece um, as quickly as we can. Uh, next up is Jill Jolicoeur, Assistant County Administrator. There she is. I was hoping you'd make it back. Um, uh, Jill has been uh, the project lead for the Built for Zero project. Um, and, and I asked Jill uh, really to help me coordinate this presentation, but also to spend some time um, discussing Built for Zero, uh, what it is, what it what it means, what the work looks like here um, in our, our community um, and on the systems uh, that you just heard David talk about um, and our, our friends from uh, the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition talk about. So uh, Jill, please um, feel free to go ahead and I will share my screen so we have your slides up. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro, Brandon. Um, I uh, am happy to come tonight and to discuss um, the Built for Zero initiative um, that the county um, in partnership with the city of Lawrence joined um, in um, the spring of 2020, um, which was a pivotal time for all of us. It was when COVID was um, and it's, um, we were all trying to wrap our brains around COVID and how to respond. Um, and as part of that response um, effort, um, I was working really closely with folks like um, David Tucker. Um, I see Dana Ortiz on this call, um, Renee Cool, all of our, and, and Derek Rogers, my partner in crime on um, uh, the housing and human services response functionality of the Unified Command. And we really quickly got organized and did our level best to try to understand how we can best serve um, our unsheltered homeless population in Lawrence Douglas County. Um, and a lot of this work started with putting together a big list. And you're gonna see putting together lists and um, coordinating care and directing folks to housing as a key theme to a lot of the work that you heard tonight and a lot of the work that um, Built for Zero is focused on and a lot of the work that organizations like Bird Nash and the Lawrence Community Shelter and the Kansas Statewide Homelessness Coalition are focused on using lists, using data, driving towards housing. Um, so real quick, here's a, um, a description of what the Built for Zero initiative is. It's a rigorous national change effort designed to help a core group of committed US communities to end chronic and veteran homelessness. Our communities focused, chose to focus on um, chronic homelessness. I'll talk a little bit more about that here soon. Um, we had hoped to have some of our, um, uh, at least one or two of our coaches from um, Built for Zero, um, who are based in communities all over the country that meet with us on a monthly basis, but also touch in, touch base with us and provide technical assistance and guidance with folks like me and David and others as we need it throughout the, the year. Um, but they're not, they weren't able to be with us. So um, we were hoping that they could give a high level kind of snapshot of what Built for Zero is, what it's doing in different communities around the country. Um, so I found, I hope it's the next best thing. Um, Bear with me for this video, but I really think it tees up nicely what we're trying to accomplish here. And um, then I'll jump through the other slides. May have to coordinate the, the sound, Brandon. Order, can you walk me through that real quick? Sorry for the technical. Sorry, it's worth it, guys. <laughs> um, Brandon, down on the bottom of your screen in the menu, you should see. Um... Hang on, let me think. Sorry. 
Share sound. There you go. Thank you. Can you imagine living in a community that has solved homelessness? A world where when an emergency arises, a person can get the support they need to remain in housing. And if they ever lose their home, they are moved into housing quickly by a system that knows them and what they need. Homelessness is rare, brief when it happens, and never becomes a way of life. The truth is, we don't have to just imagine it. In the Gulf Coast region of Mississippi, any veteran who becomes homeless is connected to housing within 30 days of identification. No one's left behind. And they aren't the only ones. Across the country, communities in Built for Zero are proving that homelessness is solvable. They do it by shifting their methodology and their mindset. First, they build a single team that is accountable for ending homelessness across the community. Who's responsible for ending homelessness in your community? The truth is, many stakeholders hold a piece of the solution, but no one has their eye on how the pieces fit together. In Built for Zero communities, everyone who serves the population works together to align their collective efforts behind a shared goal. Second, they commit to a shared aim of ending homelessness. Often, success for those working on homelessness is defined by how their individual programs perform. Built for Zero communities measure progress by whether they are collectively driving down the number of people experiencing homelessness. Their goal is to reach Functional Zero, a dynamic milestone that ensures homelessness stays rare and brief. Are fewer people experiencing homelessness than can be routinely housed? Once they reach Functional Zero for veterans or people experiencing chronic homelessness, they work to sustain it and scale that learning to the next population until their systems are built to end homelessness for all. Third, they know everyone experiencing homelessness by name and in real time. You can't solve a problem that you can't see. And homelessness is a dynamic problem that is constantly changing. But it's often tracked using an annual anonymous street count, which is just a snapshot. To end homelessness, a community needs a video. Build for Zero communities maintain by-name data on who's experiencing homelessness in real time. They understand not only every individual's needs, but the dynamics of the population as a whole. They know who is entering homelessness, who is actively experiencing it, and who is exiting it. That way, they can target where systems can be improved, test new ideas, and track whether their efforts are actually driving numbers down. Finally, they make data-driven targeted investments. Expanding housing resources is crucial, but many cities have dramatically done so without making a dent in homelessness. The reason? They never fix the housing system. Real-time data enables communities to secure and target housing resources to drive the greatest possible reductions in homelessness. Homelessness is a big and complex problem, but it's not too big or complex to be solved. While it affects those who experience it in the deepest way, it affects less than 1% of the population. Communities can build systems that continually eliminate it and ensure everyone has a place to call home and live with dignity. We can take steps together toward a future where homelessness being rare and brief is the norm, not the exception. 
Is your community a part of it? Okay, so thank you for bearing with me. I really love that video. I think it's I think it's a very nice conceptualization of what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, so real quick, um, I'm gonna jump through the next few slides, but um, we joined the Built for Zero Collaborative in um, March, April of 2020. Um, and our community team began its efforts to set and plan to reach sustainable stretch goals around ending chronic homelessness. Um, we selected chronic homelessness when we applied to be a part of the Built for Zero initiative because um, I'd spent enough time with um, my subject matter experts like David and Matthew and um, Dana and Renee to hear that chronic homelessness is, is where we really needed to dig in. Um, and there's some overlap there with some of the other um, work that the county and our partners have been doing in um, the behavioral health spectrum around um, high utilizers. And how are we um, really focusing on those folks that are most utilizing our services in the community? Um, and that's where that was our starting point. <clears throat> so, um, we put together our team, as the video talked about. Um, our team consists of myself as um, an improved, I'm, in, um, I'm the sponsor, senior leader of the, of the team on behalf of the county, um, along with um, Brandon has joined me in that role. Um, and um, our improvement team lead is Renee Cool of the Lawrence Community Shelter. Our data leads are David Tucker in, of Burt Nash and Shanae Eggert of the Kansas Statewide Homelessness Coalition. And I think you, having heard from them both, you understand why they are data leads um, with their role in the coordinated entry system and the HMIS system. Um, our public-private funding lead is um, Danelle Walters with the city of Lawrence, um, who's just um, a tremendous resource to a lot of us in this work because she keeps finding opportunities to fund, fund the work that we're all trying to do. And then our emergency response leads are uh, Matthew Falk and uh, Bert Nash and Derek Rogers um, from Parks and Rec. Most recently, we added in um, a, a couple of equity impact advisors um, that came to us through um, the work that we've done in Unified Command. Um, Danica Moore with um, USD 497 serves in that role along with um, community volunteer Elizabeth Stevens. Um, and then we recently added um, Representative John Kreibel from Justice Matters representing um, our faith community um, to better inform the work that we do as we continue operating as a team. Um, what I'm here to share with you is, you know, this blue box, uh, one, one second, that blue box, that's the work we've been doing this last year. I've gotten a, a few questions, you know, where are you at with this process? You started it a year ago. We're still in that blue box, folks. Um, and the reason why is because this, when it talks about the build, this, the lead, it assumes that you have leadership. I talked about the leadership in our team, but then the CES, that's our coordinated entry system. Um, Shanae and David didn't get a good, get, and Dawn didn't have the best chance to dive into it, but um, the, the history of um, the coordinated entry system, the history of the COC, um, the successes that they've experienced, um, it, that's more in more recent history. Um, a lot of that is because Bert Nash has committed um, the time of David and folks on that team and Matthew to make, make coordinated entry a priority. Um, as David talked about, he does that in addition to all the other things that he does, but Bert Nash has made it a priority. Um, and he does that. Um, he does it just marvelously. Um, so that system has only been in place and operating at 
my observation only, a really high functioning level um, with a lot of engagement from the different providers um, in this last year. Um, he's got the engagement. They meet every two weeks. The system is working um, um, very very at a very high level, in my opinion, but it also requires, um, you heard about the HMIS system. Um, the HMIS system that Sinead has been working on along with Don, um, that's a new system as well. The previous system was not a very, um, very compatible with doing time work. It wasn't utilized. It was not favorably considered in any way, shape or form by the providers in the community. Um, so that was a huge, that's been a huge barrier in the past. Um, we've got a really great fresh start moving into the work that we're doing right now. And so that's the foundation of Built for Zero. Um, and that's, that's where we're at now. We're moving into this quality, um, real-time binding list that, um, uh, is going to, is something that David Tucker, one more thing that David Tucker has been working on, trying to create a separate by name list that is reflective of the folks that are out in the community that yes, have taken our part of the HMIS system. That's our ultimate goal that have taken that VI spit at, um, that you asked about, um, Mayor Finkeldy, um, but are also just folks that are we know are out in the community and that we want to make sure that we're keeping tabs on in case another um, provider in the community um, comes in contact with them to make sure that we're keeping track of them and trying to connect them with housing as quickly as possible. Um, that's still a piece that David's been working hard on um, along with our technical assistance coaches at Built for Zero. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. Um, with the goal of getting to that real, um, the reliable um, by name list data. Um, and then you can move into those other boxes, um, hopefully in the next year or two. But we've set our goal to end, to get to functional zero for chronic homelessness by 2023, which is very aggressive, but we're committed to doing it as a team. Next slide. So defining that clear end state in the future. Um, and when we talk about functional zero for chronic homelessness, um, we're talking about um, less than um, or equal to you know, 1% of homeless individuals um, or three people, whatever's greater. Um, it's a big goal. Um, I, I want to say that um, I'll let David, uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, what our chronic homelessness numbers are. Um, I forget that with that big number, but um, it's manageable. We, that's where we feel like when we set that 2023 goal, we can get there. Um, next slide. So then you move into the design for change. You use that information that you put together, the by name list to figure out how we move forward and design a system for real change. Um, I like this slide because it um, does a really nice job of illustrating the work of um, what, what do they mean by built for zero um, and the time that it takes to get there. So when Community Solutions launched built, launched built for Zero in 2015, they knew they had to stop doing the same thing over and over again and really lean into what type of problem they were trying to solve. And they you know, had to stop doing more of the same thing and keeping our fingers crossed that we would end homeless, that they, did, they would end homelessness. Um, getting to zero was going to require doing things differently and they had to start training homelessness as a dynamic and systems-based problem that it is. Um, and I think you heard that um, in the video, and I think you've heard that in um, some of the overviews of coordinated entry system, HMIS system, utilizing these systems-based approaches. Next slide. Um, so then you look at what what do we what is that this by name list? Um, and is it duplicative of the HMIS system? 
The answer is for now, it is separate. Um, the hope that it is that it's going to, it may be in some ways duplicative at first, but um, it will hopefully at some point be um, integral with the HMIS system. I know that's Shanae's goal and I know that's David's goal. So we aren't maintaining two lists, but that that the binding list that we're talking about here um, starts with you know full coverage of all the agencies and programs that are represented in the system of the providers and the system of care, as we say at Douglas County. Um, and the list includes people that are sleeping in shelters and on the streets. Um, it's got person level data. Each person has the entry an entry that includes their name, their history, their health, and their housing needs, um, and each person can be followed through the system. Again, these are things that the HMIS system, a high-performing HMIS system, um, should do as well, but then it's that it's reliable, um, that it balances, so to speak, uh, month to month, so you can truly count down to zero, and once you reach functional zero, you can monitor that, those inflows and those outflows. Um, and then you can do those regular out, um, updates. Um, the list is updated monthly at a minimum. And as people's housing statuses change, so do their, um, their list entries. Um, this is a, a list that lives out on a Tableau website that only members of our team have access to. Um, but again, the data, that binding list is not quite there yet um, for us to certify, um, but we're getting there. Um, uh, next slide. All right, real quick, um, what is the by name list? It's a list. It includes those experiencing homelessness in the community we talked about. It attract it tracks the key metrics that end up for those individuals in the aggregate. It shows, um, gives you that real-time current number, the scope of homelessness to your community, tracks the inflows and the outflows, the enter and the exit. Next slide. Um, it's a system. Um, lots of people that will touch. Obviously, that's that's the framework we're looking at it um, at, at homelessness in our community because it is a system of provider, a system of care. Um, and again, if I'm if I'm using the words that my friend Bob Transky uses, it includes the universe of providers for that comprehensive outreach. It requires a strong set of policies and procedures that are adopted. One of the things we accomplished in the last year amongst our team was development of an outreach policy, a local outreach policy that is truly reflective of our aspirational goals to reach, if we're going to reach that 2023 goal of um, ending chronic homelessness by 2023, what, what do the policies look like at a local level to truly implement that? And what we determined over the course of um, a handful of meetings um, was that the logical agency to do that, um, to lead that effort in the outreach work is the Burt Nash Community Mental Health Center. Um, no surprise to folks, they are the lead in this space, but um, I think what you'll hear later in this conversation is we, we need to, we're, we're at a point now where we need to have a, um, a reckoning, so to speak, of is that agency and is that team set up to truly be successful in this work? That's what we've learned through the Built for Zero process so far. I know it doesn't seem like much, but it's it's been tremendously in, um, insightful to me, and it's going to, in my mind, help make the case for um, why this team and the folks that they support matters and is the key to success in the future. Um, and it says here that it sits in the coordinated entry system. So that's key. We're building on existing best practice systems. Um, so uh, yeah, this is a continuously changing complex nature of homelessness in our community. It's our tool. It gives us information that's real time and it helps gives us information about how to make um, decisions and where to intervene when it's timely. Next slide. Um, 
and there's just well, a few elements here of what's included in the by name list um, to give you a sense of what's in there. Um, next, next slide. And then this just kind of conceptualizes it one one more time. Um, it's you know it's there's the, the chunk of the list that helps you understand what that part does, and then you see that system. The system requires the coordinated the documented coordinated outreach, the provider full provider participation, and using that common assessment tool, um, the ISPDAT being one of them, um, and then being able to know who all those single adults are, knowing when you can be categorize them as being inactive because they've been housed, and then um, tracking without a full assessment. Um, Mayor Finkeldye, you asked about that assessment and who all can be added into the coordinated entry system. It does require that those folks um, engage in the, the VI SPDAT. Um, but if we could develop a different assessment tool that could be an alternative and still be able to get that engagement and be able to track them in this separate by name list, that's where there is a distinction between the HMIS system and the by name list that the Built for Zero initiative um, calls on communities to develop as well, to be another tool in the toolbox box um, and then help you with your policy development. Um, and then you use that tool to um, generate your quality data and um, move towards um, accomplishing goals in the future that relate to your larger um, homelessness population. I'm happy to stand for questions. Um, I, I will say that the the while the county did absorb the um, the cost of um, becoming members of the Built for Zero initiative last year, um, due to some really tremendous um, national grants from foundations, the Built for Zero work, those the, the communities that are already engaged in the initiative um, are um, fully funded to continue their work. Um, so there's no obligation for us to um, pay any further fees. We're in it to win it, so to speak. Um, and we're gonna keep doing the work and we're gonna keep um, working with some technical advisors on, and coaches as we move through these next few phases. Uh, Commissioner Arson, I have a question for you, Jill. Um, so it's my understanding that the Built for Zero was originally designed for veterans, but we've expanded that to include all of our homeless or houseless population. Is that correct? It's for both, um, Commissioner Larson. It depends on what the need is in the community. Um, for some communities, it's it's the whole thing. It's veterans and it's chronic. Um, what I understand in the community um, is that we have always, we, the Royal, we have always had a decent response system for our veterans. Um, and I think a lot of that comes into play with, you know, being close to a couple of VA medical centers and their strong connections to care. Um, that's just what I have heard historically. It's the chronic, we, we chose the chronic po population. Some communities start with chronic then move to veterans, some and onto families. Some communities choose to start with veterans and take what they've learned and move forward. I see David's raised his hand, so he may have something to help me with. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add to that, that Jill's totally correct in that uh, we have excellent uh, veteran services in our surrounding areas. The SSVF has been very helpful. Um, to be to be quite honest, we have a very small amount of homeless veterans in Douglas County. And I just wanted to kind of confirm what she's saying there. Uh, Commissioner Larson, thank you very much. Uh, the other um, question I had was the idea that this is built for zero. And, and I understand, obviously, the premise is the idea that we'll um, in homelessness. Um, how does that work or 
or how does the model work when we continue to see what appears to me to be an increase in our homeless population every year? It seems as though Lawrence has been, um, you know, right there, tagged with the um, thought that um, we do better for our homeless population. Um, so it seems as though this seems to be a gathering place. And, and I could be wrong about that. That's just my per perception. So if you could educate me on that, I'd appreciate it. Well, I first want to say we, we, the Build for Zero and our work is not, and our aim is not to end homelessness. We will not be able to end homelessness. Our hope, our goal is to make it frequent, um, lessen the length of time and prevent it to the greatest extent possible. Um, we do have a goal of ending chronic homelessness, but the reality is that um, I don't think we have the tools in our toolbox to truly end homelessness, but the hope is that we can make it rare and brief. Um, I think there's a lot of tough interpretations as to why folks um, um, seek resources in Lawrence Douglas County um, for homelessness. Um, I don't have the answers to that. What I do know is that um, I think the, the work that we've, what we've learned from Built for Zero is that um, if we don't least, at least try and ex experiment um, on what it would, what we, um, what a high functioning, some high functioning, a high functioning system could look like um, to better improve um, access to housing and coordinated care, um, which is the theme of a lot of work that's going on in the community, coordinated crisis response. Um, you heard about that earlier Earlier with the work that Chief Joels and Brandon are engaged in along with Kev, uh, uh, Ryan Halstead. Um, I, I don't have an easy answer for that. Um, uh, Commissioner, thank you, Jill. That, that, that clarifies it for me. Thank you. Jill, this is Commissioner Boley. Um, can you tell me when we shifted to the HMIS system? I'm going to let my friend Shanae or Dawn talk about that. I would be more than glad to. Um, the HMIS system that we're currently in is different than being shifting to an HMIS system, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure exactly when HUD mandated that we use a particular um, HMIS system. Historically, the balance of state, our COC utilized a, a CERB provider out of Kansas City that eventually ended up not being able to provide HMIS. And it, some of it was, they just don't have the capacity, the technical skills or the support our relationship with them ended uh, in June of 2020. We were notified, I believe in January of 2020, that they would be terminating um, HMIS, uh, had housing programs uh, services. And so it, we began, we did an RFP and we ended up using a provider called BitFocus and they're relatively new to the HMIS services and, and game However, they have been exemplary. Their product is called Clarity, and that's the physical name of the data system. BitFocus is the name of the provider. Um, they have given us the tools to actually address homelessness, to identify where our needs are, where our gaps are, where our best support is dedicated, if that makes sense. Um, and we have, we're looking at, I think we, we did two years of, um, data to ensure we re-entered it manually to ensure that the data that we had was good solid and that our benchmarks were true 
um, double checked, documented. Some of our data that we had received from our previous provider, MacLink, was not really um, dependable or we were not able to use it for data mining. So what we had with the decision was to either try to bring in or uh, migrate that data or to basically recreate it directly from case management files, which is what we chose to do um, so that we knew our confidence starting out with Clarity was high and that has been the case. And so what we're doing now is we're not just setting up the system and training everyone in the system. We're starting to explore the bells and whistles. And as Jill somewhat indicated, we now have the capability of real-time response, real-time data. We can get very finite into data mining and reporting. Um, I know that um, Commissioner Larson referred to ending homelessness. When we speak about chronic homeless, we are very dependent on the HMIS system to tell us um, how long have they been, how many incidents have they been homeless. And that is how we build the definition of chronic. It's not incidental, it's not one time, it's not in and out. It's someone who has had a prolonged period or multiple incidences. And that's who we are really, or who we, I am including myself in the Built for Zero, but what Built for Zero is after is those who are not, we're not able to help resolve, that are not situational, or that have so many barriers that even when we get them housed, as I indicated earlier, they're not able to stabilize or become self-sufficient. So using Built for Zero as the tool um, and using our HMIS system to help them strengthen that, and at some point they're going to intersect. Um, as we're exploring all these bells and whistles and brand new toy that we have, and that's how we treat it sometimes, it's it's exciting to some of us nerds, but um, we will be able to give more direction and data mining and specific information on what success looks like. And so right now we're just trying to kind of break out those definitions and decide what do we have and how can we use that. But um, I think we're hitting, I think June 1st was our launch date, Commissioner Bowley, and I think we'll be at one year June 1st with the focus is the company. Clarity is the product. I would encourage everyone to take a look at it. It is an exceptional. They were kind of uh, came out of the woodwork, not someone we were familiar with. But I will tell you, our decision to go with them was um, very much a blessing. And they have been a great guide for us to really bring things into current uh, fluid status, if you will. Um, you know, we're just even launching coordinated entry on a regional level and being able to do immediate referrals and be able to look at it and get, you know, some of the, uh, one of the challenges that David Tucker, uh, my local hero offers, and I don't know if you guys realize this, that Tucker is, does act as only our coordinated entry person, but our regional representative. And, you know, he's on the hot team and he works for Bert Nash. So, not only does he deserve a gold medal, he deserves a much higher salary if anybody's listening. However, what is not really defined and Tucker's too humble to share is the amount of time that he has been required to dedicate to closing the amount of time someone's on that list between referral and services. And uh, Tucker has been instrumental in helping us look at how can we close that? Because just because we do a referral today, and I will tell you my partners in Douglas County and Lawrence, Lawrence specifically, 
if I have something that we're piloting, I take it to Burt Nash. Um, I have two regions, Lawrence, and I have Southeast that will literally say, hey, we want to do it better. We want to do it faster. And so one of the things that we are looking at is a real-time referral, which means when we refer a client, we, anyone in our community refers a client to that coordinated entry list, the time that they're on the list to the time that they're partnered with a local program or services, there could still be a window of one week, right? That's one more week that someone does not have services or safety or housing, sometimes food or supportive services, mental health. That's a long time to be without hope, right? And so what Tucker's been in, instrumental in doing is helping us tighten that window and determine what can we do better? Are we there yet? No. But some of the lessons that we're getting, not only from Built for Zero and Burt Nash specifically, are how can we do it better? Because we do get real-time feedback from him. So if I were to offer anything, it's another badge that we need to like get four more Tuckers. And we could probably shorten that window for Jill and the rest of our Built for Zero team. Um, but that people like Tucker, but also a high-functioning, useful, very fluid HMIS system like we have. Um, we haven't been able to demonstrate what impact it will, but I promise you, as you watch the next year, Built for Zero will be able to help us move that. Um, great support systems like Tucker, that HMIS system is literally, we call it our fancy car. So when we went out to uh, start soliciting, this is the, what we do for fun, just so in case anybody wonders if we're really dull people. We said we were out looking for a car and we just wanted a car that ran well and had low miles. Um, and somehow we got electric window, heated seats in the rear view mirror. We just haven't had a chance to put all of those accessories to work. Um, but we, as we're going in and using it, you're going to see not only is it going to make an impact on a statewide level, but our agencies like Burt Nash, they're just going to get better and better. And they're going to have more real time and they're going to be a little more uh, efficient and their, their efforts are going to be matched by the system supporting those. Thank you, Commissioner Bullock. Thank you very much. Assistant City Manager Brandon McGuire, uh, with no more questions on Built for Zero, we'll move to our next presenter, uh, Renee Cool. And Renee, as everybody knows, is the Executive Director of the Lawrence Community Shelter. Um, and uh, she's going to go through some slides about Housing First, what it is, where we're at with it, um, and how we're improving. Hi, everybody. This is going so long. And so I just want to take a moment and everyone like wiggle your fingers and um, wiggle your toes. So and like lift your eyebrows up and you can even roll your eyes if you're on camera. City commissioners is totally fine. We won't be offended at this point. So thank you guys so much for having me to uh, talk about housing first. Um, I just wanted to I'm going to try to keep it brief for all of us um, so we can go on with our lives. Um, but before I dive in, I just want to acknowledge that we're having this conversation about homelessness on territory that is the ancestral homeland of the Ka, Osage, and Kickapoo people. Homelessness, um, as I see it every day, is a neo-colonial project and phenomenon. And 
uh, at the Lawrence Community Shelter, we have to consider all the time, you know, the grim irony of homelessness on stolen land. And um, especially in a community that's as rich in indigenous culture and community as Douglas County. Um, our colonial history as a community doesn't entitle us to decide who is worthy of safety, enfranchisement, wellness, and belonging, and all of those things are synonymous with housing. Um, so everyone, in my opinion, is entitled to housing. Um, but housing first is not actually an ideology or a belief, it's an evidence base. It's a body of literature in the field of social science that proves what housing means and what housing can do uh, for recovery and the lives of people who have disabilities or histories of trauma. So it's an inter intervention that brings together the material, which is housing and care, which is supportive services or um, healthcare. So you can roll to the next slide. Um, again, the basic, basic underlying principle of Housing First is that people are better able to move forward with their lives if they're first housed. Um, in a Housing First system, we offer people housing uh, if they're homeless before we prioritize other in interventions because we understand that the success of the other interventions that we offer are very often predicated on a person's housing status or the stability of their housing. So there's a little YouTube video there, but we're gonna keep going. So just keep going. Here are some core principles. Housing first is not just putting somebody in an apartment. All of these principles have to apply in order for the outcomes that we see in the evidence, in the housing first evidence base to materialize in our uh, community when we're deploying housing first. So we're providing immediate access to permanent housing without housing readiness requirements. We use the by name list and the coordinated entry system to prioritize people based on their vulnerability. So the most vulnerable folks in our community, according to our assessment, are the ones who get first priority, first jump at rental assistance as it materializes. And we don't just do that because we love housing first so much, our federal funders actually require us in order to access federal funding to organize that way. They require us to deploy a lot of these housing first principles. Um, so the better that we do that, the more likely we are to access federal funding. So prioritizing folks who are the most vulnerable. Um, if it's urgent and lethal that you're homeless, then it's urgent that you become housed as quick as possible. Uh, we also want to prioritize consumer choice and self-determination. So if your whole family is in Kansas City and your support network and you came to Lawrence to the Lawrence Community Shelter, if it's better for you to be in Kansas City and that's where you want to be, I want to help you live in Kansas City. Um, if you, if your whole family's in North Lawrence and there's an apartment in East Lawrence, really you might not be successful in your housing if we pick East Lawrence. So we're going to move you where you really want to be and look for housing opportunities uh, where it's appropriate for you. And you have a choice in what kind of apartment you get. Um, we want to make sure the apartment's safe, all of those things. Um, it is recovery oriented, but we just see housing as a crucial part of recovery for folks with behavioral health disorders. So if you're managing um, severe permanent mental illness or you're managing a substance use disorder, we are focused on helping you recover, achieve recovery um, from your symptoms. But 
uh, we just understand that you need to be in housing and we're going to provide support to help you achieve recovery. So that's where the individualized and client-driven supports um, port in. But however, there's no housing's not predicated on engaging in any of those services. So you don't, you're not required to attend a certain recovery modality. Um, you're not required to be an AA. You're not required to go to church. You're not required to have a job. Um, none of those things are, are uh, prioritized before remedying your homelessness. Uh, and so you get to decide what you need in order to recover and be, be stable in, uh, in partnership with your case manager. And we work together as a team to help you achieve long-term housing stability. Um, some folks only need this kind of intensive support in their housing for a short period of time. Right now we're offering a lot of rapid rehousing that's from anywhere from three months to 24 months of rental assistance and support and case management and care coordination. Some folks, um, about 20% of people who utilize rapid rehousing may actually need permanent supportive housing. They're gonna need support in order to be in independent permanent housing for the rest of their life. Um, and then the last thing is social community integration is really important. We talked about that. Keep going. <laughs> so this is kind of two examples in these graphics. Uh, what we used to do before we started measuring housing first was we made people jump through all kinds of hoops depending on our charity effort or what our organization was focused on before we'd help them get housed. So we might say to somebody, well, before you can be housed, you have to be full-time employed, which is kind of goofy because can you imagine living on the street and then trying to be full-time employed and get up at 5 a.m. with your alarm clock outside or in the shelter, get to your job, you know, work to save up money. It, it, a lot of our approaches when it came to dealing with homelessness 20 or 30 years ago set people up for failure. And that's why we started testing in the social services field, housing first interventions. Uh, we used to tell people, well, you have to pass five drug tests before we're going to let you get housed. And, uh, you know, if you're homeless, imagine how hard it is. You know, I always use the example of imagine how hard it is for any one of us on this call to save $1,500. Let's be honest with ourselves. Okay. Now imagine you have to save $1,500 and you're managing a drug addiction. You have to become clean on that. Uh, you have to somehow get a job and then we're going to help you get housed. Um, it's all out of whack. It's it really, we really want to set up people for success in their recovery. So that's what housing first does. We just place people in housing and then we work with them on the issues that are their barriers to long-term self-sufficiency. And so um, the impact of housing first is that it's really the tool that helps us end chronic homelessness. We can, it ends recidivism uh, by helping people achieve recovery and helping people sort out what their long-term barriers are to um, housing stability. Housing people with support is much more cost efficient for communities than all of the different interventions that we are currently patching together 
as people navigate chronic homelessness. People who are chronically homeless are utilizing all of the supportive services that the people on this call provide that you guys fund. They're in and out of the emergency room all the time. Um, they may or may not be in and out of uh, contact with the criminal justice system, with police, or doing stints in jail, sometimes just by virtue of their homelessness if they're breaking laws around where you can sleep or how you can be sheltered. Um, you know, we don't account currently in our community for the cost of chronic homelessness, but if we use national measures, uh, we probably can estimate that chronic homelessness per individual costs us three times per year what the cost is of providing a housing first intervention. So um, that's in the time that emergency services personnel use in contact with people who are unsheltered. Um, one of the key data points that I took note of in our presentation here was when the city personnel talked about the number of medical visits to uh, emergency medical visits to the Lawrence Community Shelter in 2018 and 2019. It looked like they were here every three days. Um, and that's because even in shelter, people are still homeless and people are still suffering from the medical conditions and behavioral health conditions uh, that we know that only permanent housing really situates people to recover from. So that's really a great articulation of how what the cost is of chronic homelessness. Um, so that's kind of where we are as the Lawrence Community Shelter. We're providing shelter. It's the tent pole of what we do. It's where we reside in the emergency response system. However, we know that if we want to reduce unsheltered homelessness in our community, our shelter has to be a platform for housing access. And as we move people into housing, that's how we create more space in the shelter for the next person to come in. Um, and, and also you don't require a shelter to move people into housing. Um, Burt Nash Homeless Outreach Team has been working their butts off and housing people straight from the street all year. Um, but this is what housing focused shelters do. If the only response to homelessness is shelter without housing first interventions, each shelter fills up, the unsheltered homelessness population continues to grow, but each person who moves from shelter to housing creates another open bed for uh, in shelter for another person to move into housing. So we've got to have those pathways out of shelter to permanent housing if we want to reduce the homelessness problem. Um, housing, housing focused shelter. We're promoting dignity and respect for people when we connect them to housing. Housing is crucial to your empowerment and your enfranchisement as a citizen. Um, that's just what it means. There are protections that you are afforded only by virtue of being a leaseholder or a property owner. Um, uh, things like, you know, uh, eviction protections or squatters rights or things like that, that like are only connected with you being in permanent housing. Um, if you live in the Lawrence Community Shelter, whenever I decide that it's time for you to leave, it's time for you to leave. And in housing, the relationship between a tenant and landlord affords a tenant more protection than that. So it's an important enfranchisement uh, thing that we do to, you know, acknowledge that everybody who's housed is a citizen. Um, and that's why it's so important that everybody who's unsheltered has access to housing. Um, it's about full enfranchisement. Um, we work at the emergency shelter to divert people from the homeless service system when it's safe and when it's possible. Uh, we don't want people to experience homelessness even once, um, because when you become homeless once, you're much more likely to become homeless again. 
so we just we work with people when they call to identify if where they're staying is safe, if they're housed, can you stay there? Um, those kinds of things, those conversations are important. Um, we create low barrier access to the shelter and then we create low barrier access to housing. So again, we don't put barriers up like employment requirements or sobriety requirements or drug testing or things like that. And again, we're equipping the shelter to serve as a platform for housing access. And on the uh, cute little graphic there, we're using data to measure our performance. So this is what's really crucial. A lot of what we've been talking about with coordinated entry and HMIS and um, the by name list is about data. And so we really need to have a conversation as a community about what it is that we're gonna use all that data to do. Uh, what are we gonna measure? And that's a really important piece of a housing first system is understanding what are the performance standards of our programs and how do we hold each other accountable through data that we're actually effectively working towards an end to the problem of chronic homelessness. Next slide. So I made this logo and um, I'm a graphic designer just for fun in my hobby time. Not really. Um, so, but anyways, this is kind of how a homeless system works. Uh, and removing people from engagement to stabilization and then prevention ports in our prevention interventions, they prevent recidivism and chronic homelessness just as much as they prevent that first instance of homelessness. And that's why they're so crucial. So on the engagement side, our goal is to meet people's immediate basic needs and connect them to services. So at um, LCS, we're providing in-reach services, which look like care coordination or um, uh, sort of light touch case management services. We're really focused on connecting people to housing. Um, we have street outreach. That's an engagement service that meets people's basic needs. We want to connect people to emergency medical assistance. So that means if you see someone outside and they look like they're suffering from hypothermia, call 911, call an ambulance. Um, and we want to connect people to supportive services. And we want to take a harm reduction approach in, in these. So we're not going to determine for our clients um, what's the most moral or more, most ethical path for them out of homelessness. We just want to determine what is the safest thing for them, uh, what will reduce harm. Stabilization is all of our housing services. Our goal is to connect people to permanent housing within 30 to 90 days. Um, that includes rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing, housing navigation, and connecting people to benefits or employment if, if income is really, really necessary for them to exit homelessness. And then on the prevention side, we're focused on helping you retain your permanent housing no matter what. Um, so that means paying um, rental arrears for folks who, who are housed, um, providing other emergency assistance, like helping you fix your car if that's how you get to work, um, helping you pay your utility bills, turn utilities back on, and also connect you to something like Section 8, which is a lifelong, can be a lifelong rental subsidy if you qualify. So one more graphic. You can go to the next one. This is kind of what our continuum or our um, service pipeline looks like. So um, you could have it start anywhere, but um, on the engagement side, that's where we're meeting people where they are. We seek to meet people where they are. So if that's in the street we or camping by the river, we wanna go to them and connect them to the coordinated entry system. 
and supportive services. We're providing direct assistance, like to help them uh, access an ID or deal with an acute medical issue. Um, then they're gonna go on the by name list, which puts them in, in line for housing. And uh, once we know when they're gonna access housing, we work with them on housing navigation, finding the right um, housing for you. That means the neighborhood that is right for you. Um, one bedroom, two bedroom, one bathroom, two bathroom. Does it need to be accessible? All of those things are part of housing navigation. Are you, do you have a, an eviction or felony on your record? We have to help you overcome those kinds of barriers. Um, and then once you're stably housed, we support you and help and help promote housing retention. For lots of folks who access rapid rehousing, that means moving you on to Section 8. And then again, there's a group, maybe like one out of five, who access rapid rehousing who are not going to access Section 8 and so are going to require some other kind of uh, lifelong assistance. Next thing. So this is just to help you. These are where all the partners kind of poured in. I'd rather just provide this PowerPoint, you guys have this PowerPoint. So if this is captivating for you, you can dig into it. You can keep going, Brandon, or whoever is controlling the thing. Okay. Uh, Renee, real quick, sorry. Yeah. Assistant City Manager, Brandon McGuire. I just will point out, um, uh, there's been, you know, a lot of, a lot of talk, uh, discussion with the, with the commission, um, at least at your level about who does what. And I think that this slide is, is pretty helpful in that, in, in kind of parsing out who really does what, but it also does illustrate um, the multiple roles that some of uh, our partner agencies play. Um, but I, I just, I did want to draw your attention to, to this slide because um, I do think it is, it is a helpful illustration. Sorry, Renee. So it shows where everyone is on the flow chart. And that was kind of the extent of my graphic design ability. So all of our partners are here on the list. Right. So that's basically it in terms of how our system works and how Housing First in our system operates. Um, and kind of a little low down look at how the shelter fits in. Questions? Okay. And so you can call me at any time and we can always talk about this. Maybe Thank you guys. Renee, yeah. um, I think I saw it on maybe your Facebook page today or something, but. Can you update? I was pretty impressed by the uh, the information on how many people you've been moving into permanent housing from LCS. Well, I have an update on our hotel. Um, so the city helped us access ESG funding to uh, uh, house people, shelter people at the Connell Lodge Hotel for 90 days this winter. And remember, we'd been operating there in the fall, but not at full capacity. So that ESG money allowed us to go up to um, something like 60 households in the hotel at once and or over 90 days. And we did move 26 of them, of those households into permanent housing. Um, I just lost my notes about the others. I think what else is really, really important to note about the hotel is that on the final day, we knew where everyone was going. We had a plan for them. So we only had seven people, seven households at, um, exit the hotel and just abandon it and not communicate with us where we were going over those 90 days. Uh, we exited 25 households to permanent housing. Um, 19 folks did exit because they were engaged in criminal behavior or behavior that broke the rules that we had in the hotel. And um, another four came to the Lawrence Community Shelter and only one person exited to 
his car. So we didn't exit anyone to the street. And I, I just want to emphasize that that's part of the housing first intervention too. And so at any time we're interacting with people experiencing homelessness, we're helping them make a plan. And it's okay to tell someone you have 60 days, you have 90 days, if you're going to offer them the support that's necessary and the pathway to permanent housing. Um, and clients respond to that. They, they feel engaged. Um, and they're not desperate or traumatized if we say, this is a time-limited thing for you, homelessness. It's not going to go on forever. And we expect you to work with us to help you remedy this. And we're going to do it fast. We're going to do it in 90 days. Um, and people respond to that. Um, and then if it doesn't happen, then we help them make a plan B. And so that's what we did at the Connell Lodge Hotel. And some of those folks who um, went to a plan B, like a, staying with a family and friend, we know they might be back at the shelter. And then we'll try again in terms of connecting them to housing. So yeah, we've been working like crazy. And our move out team has been uh, doing like a couple moves every weekend with people exiting homelessness all over the community. Uh, so things are changing. We have experienced a paradigm shift and um, I'm really excited about the rest of the year. Yeah, Commissioner Larson, um, this flowchart key partnerships is really good to see. Um, um, I appreciate you putting that together. Um, it just shows you the number of organizations we have in our community that uh, is part of this um, solution or trying to be a part of the solution. Uh, one thing that I, um, I was going through my head as you were talking, Renee, was, you know, you talked a lot about the, the services, the, the financial services that are provided in order to get folks into housing, which is obviously key to get that going. Um, um, I'm curious a little bit, and I kind of see this from some of this list, is the, what sort of support services or wraparound services are provided that are provided that provides them or allows them to gain the skill set necessary to keep housing to, um, you know, to, to, to ensure that they stay in housing long term. So we provide when we do rapid rehousing um, a supportive services case manager and that person's really housing focused. So they're going to help you like if you run into an issue with your landlord or you run into an issue with your neighbor, your neighbors. Um, a lot of people who have a history of chronic homelessness also um, maybe have a history of eviction. They might be managing a mental illness. And so it's really important to have someone step in who is the supportive services case manager, the housing-based case manager. Talk to your landlord, talk to your neighbors, um, make sure, and then and then they connect you to these other providers on, these li on this list. And make sure you know that you're going to your appointment or that you're getting connected to um, the right mental health provider or um, that you're connecting to family or friends or a network that can help you stay stably housed. So that person does a lot of care coordination in addition to doing some really specific housing-based case management tools that really only port in when you're on a housing first program like rapid rehousing. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. That's appreciate that. Thanks, Mayor Shipley. Um, Renee, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds very um, social work intensive. And um, I feel like maybe we've almost heard the names of all the people in town who um, can even do that work. And this seems like a lot more work than that. How, how much more 
help do we need in that respect? That's actually such, I thank you for bringing that up, Courtney. I mean, yeah, it is, it's true that um, intervening responsibly and effectively in the lives of people who have a history of homelessness and helping them recover from that is actually an expertise, like it's a professional skill set. So um, yeah, we're actually growing that skill set in our community right now. That's what having rapid rehousing funding has allowed us to do. It's allowed us to, at the shelter, hire more social workers and train them in this particular type of intervention. Um, train them how to work with landlords, train them how to work with clients specifically on their housing. Um, as they're managing a, a mental illness and all of those important things like being trauma-informed, um, harm reduction tools, those are, those are really important social work skills. In addition to all the data collection that we're doing and the data work that we're doing to maintain an effective system, so people have to be knowledgeable in privacy, people have to um, understand how to communicate and connect with clients and build trust with them. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I'm excited about the new federal resources that we've brought to Lawrence over the last year because it's really built a deep bench of social workers who are focused on resolving homelessness with clients. This is Assistant City Manager Brendan McGuire. I might also add uh, just a couple thoughts, uh, Commissioner Shipley, and that is a fantastic question. Um, you, you know, our, our experience in in standing up um, multiple you know, three winter sheltering programs, uh, the one Renee and LCS ran, uh, the one that Matthew and the Burt Nash team helped with at uh, Woody Park, and then the um, uh, one that the Coalition on Homeless Concerns and Justice Matters helped with, uh, starting at the Days In. Um, those were rapidly stood up uh, programs, relatively rapidly stood up programs. Um, and, you know, by the time we got to the third one, the emergency overnight drop-in shelter uh, at the Days Inn, uh, you know, we, we realized very quickly, city staff, that the labor pool is tapped. Um, there, there's no more skilled labor uh, to be able to, to put towards this program. Um, that was a very concerning uh, realization. Um, we worked through it um, and we had fantastic volunteers uh, who really worked their tails off um, for uh, several months straight every single night to make that program happen, plus great city staff and, and some help from others. Um, and so we were, we were fortunate to be able to pull that off, but I think that just speaks to the need for a system um, approach to improvement, systematic improvement, data-based, um, so that we can make um, very strategic public, uh, strategic investments of public resources based on service level expectations and performance uh, performance monitoring. So, a, a very insightful question that opens up a probably a, a future presentation. We don't need to get into it anymore tonight. But. Any other questions for Renee on housing first before we move to Matthew? Okay, well, thank you very much, Renee. Thank you. Uh, the last of our um, guest contributors, uh, we have Matthew Falk, um, Bird Nash Housing Director. And I'm not sure if Stephen O'Neill, the Chief Operating Officer is on uh, this evening. Stephen, if you are, feel free to join us by turning your camera on. Um, and uh, I've asked Matthew to, provide um, kind of a, a 
bit of a discussion about immediate and, and near-term needs um, as he sees it uh, being being um, not just uh, sort of a point person for the outreach component of the system, uh, but also being um, very much involved with all of the partner agencies um, through coordinated entry, um, through rapid rehousing, and the other components of the system that you've heard tonight. Um, and so I think Matthew, um, we often uh, rely on his expertise, um, not just his expertise, but his years of experience working in the community um, to give us some perspective on uh, where where resource needs exist. Thank you very much, Brandon. Uh, thank you, commissioners, for the opportunity to speak um, and uh, provide information. Uh, and thank you for your patience tonight in this kind of uh, grueling presentation. Um, we've talked about what we have and we've talked about what works. And I'm going to talk about the needs and gaps and kind of what we need to do in order to get there. Um, I think first and foremost, there's a systemic planning need and we need a, a to develop the existing initiatives such as Built for Zero and the coordinated entry process into a comprehensive plan with actionable strategies and sufficient resources to address and meet immediate as well as moderate and long-term need. Um, Built for Zero and coordinated entry are a very good start. They uh, are what we need to be doing. I champion them all day long, and uh, but they're not quite there yet. And there's some things that we still need to do to get them to the point uh, that they need to be. So for example, Built for Zero does not currently involve planning or action steps to address immediate needs, such as widespread camping that we're experiencing throughout the community. Uh, it's designed to um, as a program that's implemented over several years process to target initially a subset of the overall population, which is chronic homelessness, veterans homelessness. And then after that to proceed incrementally uh, to the wider needs. Uh, and in that manner, it is an incremental process. It's not a comprehensive process upfront. Um, and again, uh, uh, an example is that we we're not using that to address immediate needs. On the other hand, coordinated entry is, um, has a lot of providers at the table. We're trying to get that uh, increased to include everyone, uh, but not everybody's at the table yet. And it does not operate according to a community-wide strategy yet. It operates according really to the need to meet administrative requirements uh, on the basis of HUD. And we're attempting to make that a much more wider uh, locally-based continuum despite HUD. Um, so currently we're, we're in those processes. Um, Built for Zero and Coordinated Entry are a good start for creating and developing a community-wide plan, um, but they need to substantially develop beyond their existing scope uh, currently. Systemically, um, we also need to understand that Coordinated Entry and Built for Zero have highlighted that the continuum still has a lot of work to do regarding universal data input into a central system and in coordinating care between service providers. Assessing the level of need requires a central data tracking system and process utilized by all providers. Uh, Built for Zero and Coordinated Entry have partially realized this, and we've done a lot of work um, to, to get to where we are, but we still have a long way to go to get everybody utilizing a central system and everybody feeding data into a centralized system. Um, also, Coordinated Entry and the HUD-defined continuum of care are not absolutely contiguous with the entire local continuum of providers, and they do not constitute uh, the exhaustion of services and options. Entry and the continuum of care are HUD-funded programs 
and they, at least in that respect, only represent a portion of the overall local continuum. The goal is not that, therefore, that everyone goes through COC and ESG-funded programs um, and that they don't constitute the totality of our continuum. The goal is that the local continuum functions and operates as a coordinated service process inclusive of all programs, including COC and ESG programs, and that serves as the venue for all providers to coordinate in case conference, regardless of coordinated entry and HUD. Um, this would be a place for all providers to participate in this process, much like coordinated entry does, uh, to assess the needs of every household, to identify the most appropriate resources and services, and to connect households with the most appropriate resources. This may be the programs associated with coordinated entry, such as rapid rehousing and homeless prevention, the ESG uh, and COC funded programs, or it may be other programs such as uh, housing authority, transitional vouchers, age-based facilities, one-time rental and deposit assistance provided through the Housing Stabilization Collaborative, supported employment services, mental health and substance use treatment services, food assistance uh, from Just Food and other pantries, emergency shelter at uh, LCS, Family Promise or the Willow, uh, or for example, a bus ride somewhere else in the country where they have someone might have natural supports uh, that are willing and able to help them. Um, and if we can get them there, we can do that. But those are examples of other parts of the continuum that are not necessarily uh, captured in what you, we would formally call the continuum of care as HUD finds it. But what we're trying to do is expand that to uh, our own local process that does involve everybody and assesses everyone to um, meet their needs. We have some work to do to get there. We're not quite there. Um, so that's, that's an improvement that we need to make. Uh, we need some leadership needs. Uh, we need a community-wide strategy and coordination of all services, and, and that has to be supported and cooperatively led by both the city and the county and incorporated into the strategic plan of both organizations. Each entity can assist and financially support or champion a given subset of the overall plan, but the plan should be jointly developed and cooperatively led and mutually incorporated into the wider community planning and strategic framework for the entire community. Um, then we have resource needs. So that's kind of the needs that we have on the systemic and um, planning side. Um, on the side of resources, establishing comprehensive plan is the first step, but no plan can be realized without the needed resources. Um, as we are witnessing in the community today, we lack adequate resources to, saw, to serve the population and, and, and make a, and to realize the momentum in the, in the other direction. Uh, the needed resources are adequate shelter facilities and space, adequate, affordable, accessible, appropriate housing, and those three things are very key, as Renee pointed out, and adequate supportive services uh, to, uh, to help those people both before they enter housing and after they get into housing. Uh, to obtain and maintain housing requires supportive services and treatment services. Uh, there's an inadequate quantity of outreach and supportive service staff to work with households when they're displaced and after they obtain housing. For example, the current homeless outreach team employs four workers uh, who are available to work with anyone experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity in the community. Uh, this is an average of one worker for every 70 people documented uh, in the community today, right now, who are without housing. And that's just the people who are, who are out on the street. That doesn't include people who are in shelters. Um, that's the ratio that we have documented today, right now. And again, that doesn't include everyone who's going to be needing that service over the period of the next year or two years, et cetera. 
Um, other than the other than the homeless outreach, there's a long-term case management and supportive service need that isn't uh, that we don't have. Um, most case management and long-term supportive services right now are tied to Medicaid funding or they're tied to a specific program that have specific qualifications. The community needs an additional six to eight dedicated outreach staff and an additional 12 to 16 long-term supportive service providers who can work with anyone to achieve uh, the goals that they need to maintain housing stability over the long haul. And we need these numbers to achieve a ratio that approaches what evidence-based practices require or the standards of evidence-based practices, which are uh, around 25 clients per worker or less. Um, we're nowhere near that right now in our community so far as uh, the workforce that we have to provide services. Um, so far as housing and shelter space, starting with shelter space, uh, there's an insufficient uh, uh, supply of shelter space and COVID has also challenged us in the kind of design and configuration of shelter space that we have to offer. Uh, the traditional shelter space has been you know, con uh, congregational and this has challenged us in, in, in a way that we've never seen before this year. Um, so shelter space is less now than it was 10 years ago, um, but the community has grown by several percentages over the last decade uh, and we've not kept up. Um, to meet the existing need, for example, would require 280 beds. We assess that there's at least 280 people living on the streets today who don't have access to shelter. This is the documented number. Um, other than shelter, we need um, housing. Um, housing, shelter is not the solution. Housing is the solution. Uh, however, we will always have some need for shelter uh, because housing takes time. Unless we as a community are gonna create a large amount of housing stock that is sitting empty and waiting for people who need it and to use it as a shelter provision, we will always have a need for some form of shelter in the community <clears throat> to help households to become homeless uh, over the time it takes to get them into housing. For housing needs, we need sufficient rent to pay for at least 12 months of rent per household. And the way that looks today is if we were gonna house 280 people, the number of people that we know are on the street today, that would cost around $2.75 million when we're paying the HUD assessed fair market rent of $756 a month for a one bedroom unit. In the market today, however, that level of, if that level of funding were made available, there would still be an inadequate quantity of accessible appropriate housing as the private sector tenant screening criteria will disqualify most households due to housing history, unless a major organization were willing to co-sign or master lease those units um, and assume the liability and risk of damages that's associated with that. <clears throat> Accessible, appropriate, affordable housing means housing that people will be allowed to rent, that they can financially maintain with their means, and that is an appropriate quality and configuration for the household size. Um, funding to provide rental payments cannot be effective if local landlords and housing providers don't approve or accept households as tenants, and housing is un unsustainable or unaccessible if the costs exceed the household's means or the quantity and configuration is substandard in the housing that they are able to access. If the only housing that we have is substandard quality, that drastically affects the overall health of, of the household and their ability to be successful in moving forward. Um, other than that, if, we, if we're not gonna remain, other than accessing housing in the private sector, 
Um, well, if uh, another aspect of accessing housing in the private sector is um, rent risk. And if we wanna help private land or property owners to mitigate risk, then we have to be able to provide incentives to them to overcome that risk. And that incentive is both in the form of payment for damages that are that might occur and or um, helping them overcome the, the cost of lowering rental rates to make those units affordable. That's either in the form of a subsidy, increased subsidies that we don't have enough subsidy to make that housing accessible for everyone who needs it. And we don't have any kind of risk mitigation process to help landlords who may otherwise be uh, incur a large risk due to damages. Otherwise, we're looking at the provision of accessible and affordable housing um, through the nonprofit service providers. They can provide housing in a more flexible way that has criteria that's more flexible for the given tenants, uh, such as a policy not to evict. And they can operate at a lower cost given uh, their position in the marketplace. And they can provide supportive services for people who have specific challenges, such as severe mental illness, um, that would undermine their ability to maintain tenure in the private market. So that's that's another issue, you know, with people who have severe challenges, such as mental illness, um, that persist over a lifetime are going to continue to struggle with meeting the criteria that is established by the private market. So we do have a strong need for housing that's provided by the nonprofit market and service provider agencies who can help support them. Um, additional challenges involve neighborhood willingness to accept programs and housing and the residents that come with them. Accessible housing includes the availability of space to build and locate housing and services. So neighborhoods are a key necessary partner in addressing and creating the housing and service solutions that, that we're trying to realize. They, they, they have to be at the table and they have to be included in that process. Another big process or a big uh, gap that we have is prevention on the prevention side. Um, most services and resources today are targeted at the outflow, getting people out of homelessness, but true sustainability means adequate resources and systems to change uh, the inflow, why people become homeless. This includes addressing systemic causes of poverty and homelessness, which is a very large topic. Uh, it involves the national economic structure. It involves resource and wealth distribution. It involves our social and cultural structures and values. At the local level, it requires safety nets that can provide immediate support for households who are at risk of losing their housing and supportive services and real opportunities to address why those households are at risk. This involves real employment opportunities that pay living wage. This improve, uh, involves opportunities to pursue an education and services to address generational poverty and human development needs experienced by persons who are involved in generational poverty. In a nutshell, those are kind of the gaps that exist today and that we're, we're looking to fill as we try to build on the success that we have, to build on the, in, the initiatives that we have, and to build on the really strong relationships and partnerships and, and strong will and dedication from all the service providers that are out there. Um, none of this is meant to you know, criticize anybody, everybody. Uh, LCS, Renee, Willow, uh, Family Promise, the Outreach Team, Just Food, all these agencies are working as hard as they can. Um, in a nutshell, everything is just extremely under-supported um, in order to meet the need that exists, not only in our community locally, but across the nation. Um, from a wider perspective, I also think there needs to be a lot more collaboration between leaderships of different counties. So. 
the city of Lawrence and Topeka and those county commissions coming together and Johnson County and Wyandotte County coming together because we work as a region and, and this population is also regional. Um, I mean, that's a, a much bigger picture, but those are some things that we can do and some areas that we need to be looking at to address this issue. Thank you, Matthew. Oh. Sorry, can I, sorry, Brandon. Um, Matthew, I feel like I heard you and Jill both include um, leadership and I think you say here, centralized coordination. Um, and no one's saying this specifically, but are you, would you recommend or has someone considered um, a position maybe like Jasmine with sustainability where the city and the county share that position, um, but they coordinate um, that space? Um, is, is that something that you've dreamed of in addition to an army of social workers? Um. In relation to local leadership, you know, I think we have everybody in place. I don't think there's a need to um, create another kind of coordination position, with the exception that I, I do think there's um, we need to fully fund a dedicated regional coordinator. David's job is a full-time job as regional coordinator, and it's a full-time job to to manage the outreach team. So, if we did that, I think that's the, really the missing piece in relation to local coordination. Jill. David, Renee, myself, Dana, Shannon Ari, um, all, you know, Megan, we are all able to work together and coordinate and, and you know, we have that, that is in place, I think. Uh, so I don't, I don't envision a need for a dedicated person in addition to what we already have. What we need is more support for the boots on the ground and resources and the existing efforts that that we have with Built for Zero and Coordinated Entry to really expand them to the point where they are, everybody's at the table, we're feeding data into a central system, we have some resources to address immediate as well as longer term needs, and we're working under the same kind of comprehensive vision. Again, Built for Zero and Coordinated Entry are really uh, a good, we're on our way to doing that. We still have some work to do though, and we definitely have a huge amount of resource need to make that reality. Uh, to bring that reality to fruition. This is Commissioner Ananda, and I might need to turn off my video um, because my internet is a little wonky. Um, so I will apologize for that ahead of time. But I think that I think that my question is a little broader. I'm thinking about like special populations or particularly at-risk populations who are experiencing homelessness, thinking about queer kids, transgender youth, um, BIPOC. Um, women who are experiencing homelessness and really looking at um, 
this 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 entire project, which is massive and wonderful, and seeing um, really no discussion about the impact that experiencing houselessness has on those populations. It's very different um, from other populations. Um, looking at equity within that, and even just looking at the representatives who are speaking with us tonight, a largely white population. Um, how are we addressing those issues? Are we addressing those issues? Um, what is the plan around that? You know, I, the truth of the matter is, is that we are so stretched thin. We work with anybody who walks in our door, right? Like it's, it's, we are so kind of overburdened with just the deed from the get-go. You know, so Willow is there for targeting um, people who have issues with you know, domestic violence um, in relation to just hammering out further subsets that need targeting. We need that, right? We definitely need that. Um I would say very honestly that no one is not like we're not not serving those populations, but we're in a position where we're looking at the entire picture. We're looking at the whole, you know, the whole group of, of need. Um, you know, the social determinant of health in people's lives is is housing and their home quality, um, regardless of who, who we are. We definitely need to target the inequities that exist in our community in relation to um, you know, racism and uh, sexism and uh, you know, people of uh, gender issues and things like that. This is, uh, these are initiatives we need to include in this wider planning. So that needs to be a very concerted effort in, in the overall plan. Um, and I think a lot of that exists on the prevention side. A lot of that exists on the sustainability side in providing equitable opportunities for households to go to school and to get um, living wage jobs and to participate on a more equal and equitable playing field in the wider community. So we're preventing those populations from ever experiencing this type of, this type of challenge. I can tell you that, you know, for example, um, people who have people of uh, sensitive gender issue is a big pro is a big population in, in the homeless community. And it, they are overrepresented in that community. Um, so yes, there's, there's planning, um, there's needed effort there. Um, I, th I think, again, we're so overwhelmed. I, uh, just by the sheer numbers of everybody, we're kind of, you know, we're always kind of stepping backwards and reeling a little bit right now, especially after this year. I think before we hit this year, before COVID hit, we were in a very good place to say, you know what, built for zero chronic homelessness, we're gonna do that. After COVID, we have a much wider need. And what I think in my own estimation happened is that the community and nation was already, we had problems that were under the surface that were not being addressed adequately. And COVID has exacerbated that to an extent. And now they're, uh, they're, now they're very obvious. Um, you know, we were piecemealing and band-aiding things for a long time, and we have been as a nation. We've been neglecting things as a nation, and COVID ex exacerbated that. And so the large numbers that we're seeing today are the result of the fact that when something goes a little bit wrong in our community, all the things that we've neglected fester over at a much larger extent. And, and um, But planning-wise, yes, those 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 populations enough to need to be targeted in an overall plan. And that should be a part of that planning process. 
Commissioner Ananda, I would just say that, you know, our Built for Zero initiative, that was key to why we chose to deploy or add some equity impact advisors into our work to have that framework of looking at the work that we do and making sure that we're keeping equity top of mind. Um, what the point in time count does tell us is that there is an overrepresentation of Black citizens in our um, our homeless population, so that's one day, one indicator of um, why we need to get equity right. It needs to be core to our framework. But um, I also think that what my observations as a um, ex officio board member of the Lawrence Community Shelter, along with Brandon, is that organizations like the Lawrence Community Shelter have made a lot of strides to try to. Um, create a more trauma-informed um, environment for um, transgender um, uh, queer population in the community that are experiencing houselessness um, to make sure that that environment is set up to be um, hospitable to those folks um, and is preventive of the sort of, um, frankly, um, you know, just very detrimental environment that may have existed there before. And again, my observation you know, the work that Renee has done has been very, um, it's, it's challenged a lot of ways of doing things in this community that um, have, you know, caused a lot of questions and, and heartburn for folks. But at, at, at the heart of it, I know she believes it's the right thing. She's thinking about the population that you're asking about. Um, and it's not easy to change the way we've done things, but I do see changes happening. Um, and I hope that we can try to have a more comprehensive approach to it as we work through the community health planning process um, as it relates to um, social justice and equity um, with the work of the health department um, and also a safe and affordable housing plank of the community health plan. And I don't want to delay this. I just want to. I just want to add um, on that subject that you know we see every day how um, uh, scarcity results in um, violence in people's lives, and specifically in, in sexual violence. Um, obviously. Um, uh, you know, that's prominent in the lives of people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, but also I'm concerned about the safety of our service environments where we're providing services and being understaffed and um, under secure. And for instance, the all of the hotel shelters that were run over the last um uh, several months and also even at the Lawrence Community Shelter where we struggle with maintaining an appropriate staff ratio to ensure a safe, um, secure environment where we can not just respond to sexual assault but actively prevent um, sex tra trafficking, drug tra trafficking and um, sexual violence. And so um, really for us uh, keeping people safe just within our shelter environments, let alone our service environments, let alone um, the broader community uh, is, is really difficult when you're operating at uh, above your full capacity. And so it's a major concern. And I want to thank you, Jennifer, for bringing that up. I don't know how to raise my hand. I'm sorry, but I was just going to kind of jump in and talk about some of the things that we do to address all of those specific populations, Jennifer. Um, if we are doing the work as trauma-informed and low barrier, that is precisely the way that we go about making sure that we are particularly um, meeting the needs of extra vulnerable populations. So, you know, just going to a low barrier model alone is 
a huge piece of understanding how to not screen people out of services, but instead screen them and make them feel welcome and meet their needs according to who they are and not what our system dictates to them. So that all has to do with, you know, really deeply training. Um, we've invested, the Willows invested about $50,000 over the last two years in really extensive trauma-informed training and systems and coaching for our entire staff. So it's expensive. It takes a lot of time. We have to be able to pull our people out of their day-to-day work to sit down for a week-long training twice a year. And that's hard to do when you run a 24-hour shelter. Um, but those are major priorities. And we certainly take them seriously and are constantly looking at our own data to see, like, are we exiting people of color at a higher rate from shelter than we are white people? You know, we have to keep asking ourselves those questions. And then when we get the answers, we have to ask ourselves why and keep at it. We're not there yet. This is Mayor Finkeldye, real quick. Um, Megan, we know who you are, but just for the audience, Megan Stuckey from the Willow and others jump in, make sure you induce yourself when you come in. But thank you for that, Megan. Yeah, I would add that the primary means to achieve those is to have an adequate amount of resource that's available. So for example, if housing, if, if Willow's beds are all full and someone's experiencing a domestic violence issue, we just don't, you know, what resource are we going to use them? So we, that, that's a, that is the primary factor driving this. whatever we're doing is, is that we have the adequate resource available to train people, to provide housing, to provide supportive services. That, that is the, that's where the rubber hits the road in, in all of these, these issues that we're facing. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, this is Assistant City Manager Brandon McGuire. Any other questions for uh, Matthew or um, Stephen before we move to the final couple of slides here? Great. Well, um, this last part is, uh, is there we go. Sorry, this is hard to do while you're <laughs> multitasking on Zoom. Um, the last last part are a couple. Uh, points that I put together, um, and they really come uh, with discussions between the city administrator or the county administrator's office and the city manager's office. Um, and I will uh, say that that these are um, sort of uh, sort of outline points about how uh, between our two offices, we have talked about um, the city and the county uh, cooperating, coordinating, um, and to some extent collaborating. Uh, in this space, um, in in this in this system, so I won't go into great detail. Um, it, it's it's pretty conceptual, um, but really just to point out a couple a couple of thoughts, um, and I'll kind of scroll through. But uh, the slide deck is attached for anybody who wants to scroll through on their own while I'm talking about this. Um, what we're what we're trying to do in this work um, is focused on systems improvement. Uh, it's focused on um, between the city and the county uh, setting shared principles, uh, identifying um, outcomes that we that we have mutual agreement on, um, and then working through uh, working in coordination, not in duplication, but in coordination um, through our budget uh, processes, our, our planning processes, um, uh, and and other um, other avenues and, and venues that are in place. Uh, to make sure that we're targeting public resources in this space 
to, to in the most efficient way um, to get the outcomes um, that that we identify uh, for the community at the community level, um, and to make sure that we have systems of accountability um, and and clear uh, clear roles identified um, as we develop the as we develop the service system and the coordinated entry system that you've heard about. Um, there's also, uh, as you heard Jill talk about with Bill for Zero, there's uh, a governance consideration. There's uh, you know, policy development, um, and uh, and and then you know, that that drives um, some of the some of the investments of public resources in, into the system again to um, accomplish those community level outcomes. Uh, so again, I'm just sort of scrolling through this, um, it's really late and I wasn't planning on uh, at this point getting into a detailed discussion of this. I just wanted to put it on the commission's radar that these are the uh, types of conversations that um, between the, the city manager's office and the county administrator's office we're having. And we would look forward to coming back to the commission, um, maybe in a joint session or maybe um, in a, in a um, single city commission uh, setting with a little bit more firm conceptualization of, of um, these, these policy items in the last couple of slides. So this is more just to put it on your radar, considering how long uh, we've been going and how much uh, information the commission has uh, had to process tonight. Um, I think it'd probably be more advisable to save more of a policy discussion for another night. And, and I will say also, just in wrapping up, Again, thank you to all of the providers. Thank you to the commission and to the, the public and the media who's um, been very patient in going through all of this information. I've found it to be extremely helpful. And I hope that, that you all have as well, especially as we lean into um, more specific policy, uh, policy discussions with the city commission and definitely with the county commission. Um, I do know that there are a number of service providers and some residents um, on the meeting tonight and I would expect that there is going to be some public comment. Um, so just mayor, I offer that for your, for your consideration as well. Mayor Finkel, I thank you. Um, Brandon, go ahead, go ahead and stop sharing your screen there and bring it back. Um, we've had a chance to ask questions, but do any commissioners have any questions now um, before we open it up to public comment? Seeing none at the moment, I would go ahead and open this up um, to public comment. We've gotten a lot of good um, information, but we know, as Brandon said from the outset, that um, as much information as we, we gather tonight, this is only a subset of the information that uh, is out there on these topics and the opinions on these topics. So if you'd like to make um, public comment, please raise your hand using your raise your hand feature. And if if you're on Zoom and if you're present, you can let Sherry know and Sherry will call upon you and you'll have three minutes. Sarah Taliaferro. Sarah Taliaferro. Good evening. Uh, my name is Sarah Taliaferro and I want to speak to the homelessness and affordable housing crisis on discussion. Uh, for tonight's agenda. 
the scope of the crisis for those experiencing homelessness in our community has become more visible to us over the last year and has worsened because of the pandemic. I believe that never before in our community's history have we been more ready and more poised to enact sweeping changes that we need to see and that this can only happen through deep collaborative efforts with multiple partners, as many of the presenters indicated, uh, including those not traditionally at the table, but who are impacted by these efforts. The first and most urgent collaboration needs to happen immediately in response to the astounding amounts of federal money earmarked for ending chronic homelessness and creating stable housing, the most funding of its kind since the 1970s. Uh, and this is headed to state and local governments. Andy Brown, who is the commissioner for the Kansas Department of Aging and Disability Services. Uh, Andy Brown formerly worked at the Lawrence Community Shelter at Burt Nash and ran the mental health hotline headquarters. He has offered to convene a professionally facilitated housing and homelessness summit. It will be held mostly virtually on April 28th and 29th of this year. I imagine someone will be officially getting in touch with the commission about this. Uh, the purpose is to bring the stakeholders together to understand the needs and craft the most effective proposal and plan for the use of federal funds. Planning partners include Justice Matters, City and County staff, Burt Nash, Family Promise, tenants to homeowners, and several others. Planners hope that Lawrence will demonstrate leadership within the state to be the first with the best plan forward. The window of opportunity is now. We need a plan in place by late June or early July. Some of these programs are new to the federal agencies overseeing them, such as the Emergency Rental Assistance Program through the U.S. Treasury. Others, uh, such as through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, or all of them actually, are works in progress with staff and staffing and planning challenges to flesh out the details of administrating these funds. And then with HUD, it also is hiring to fill vacancies and restructure after four years of disorder and neglect. Mm -hmm. It makes it paramount for us because organized communities who effectively advocate for funding and who have a clear plan are most likely to benefit fully from these dollars. The second collaboration I envision is a planned community engagement project on homelessness and affordable housing that tackle, tackles a myriad of yeah. ongoing... I'm sorry. Sarah, your three minutes is about is up. If you can okay. grab uh, Yes, sorry. Um, these challenges uh, tackle a myriad of ongoing roadblocks and challenges to success that our community faces. These challenges range from land use and infill development, healthy partnerships with neighborhoods, developing more and successful landlord participant relationships and housing choice voucher programs, expanding out ranks of trained professionals in housing and other services. I'd just say everything that Matthew Falk said, he, he hit on all the points. Thank you, um, Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I guess I'm out of time. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Christopher Berger. Hi, good evening. Uh, just a few uh, maybe different perspectives on it. First one is all the, the people who are speaking or have been presenting for the most part are governmental uh, or are agencies that are 
you know, um, who, who live off of this unfortunate situation. So, you know, some, some care needs to be had in how you approach it based off of only that input. Also, it's uh, as someone who knows all of the downtown um, individuals, uh, I, it's rather presumptuous for people to be claiming that this is a, um, uh, that, that people don't necessarily want to live in the situation. I don't understand it. Part of me is jealous that they're as free as they are, but there are many individuals who actually desire and choose this lifestyle. And lastly, as someone who lives in a Pinckney neighborhood and has had uh, a recent influx, I'll simply share the story that while uh, our park was occupied by tenters, uh, all of the neighborhood children no longer played in the park, no longer played outside. In fact, when people walk through the park, which was a very active and only entrance into the riverfront area, that traffic dropped by about 90%. And people would only walk basically on our side of the streets. Within an hour of the tents leaving the park, the sounds of children returned to the streets and people began to play in the park again. So there are unintentional consequences uh, of, of these situations that affect the citizens uh, of, of Lawrence other than, you know, the 250 individuals. So thank you very much. Sherry Reedman, City Clerk, is there anyone else on Zoom who would like to provide comment on this item? If so, please raise your hand, or if you can't do that, turn on your screen. Uh, Dana Ortiz. Yeah, thank you very much. I know it's late, and I appreciate all of your interest and the commissioners tackling this very difficult subject. Uh, I'm Dana Ortiz, the Executive Director at Family Promise of Lawrence, and not to add to the complications, but to, to merely speak to a couple issues. Family homelessness, and we routinely take this information upon intake into any of our programs. Um, we ask where they slept previous to coming into our programs. And many of them will not qualify for the myriad of, of rapid rehousing options and such that have very strict definitions of homelessness being in a shelter. If they're in our shelter program, of course they qualify. But if they've been doubled up or staying with their relatives, they do not qualify for that kind of funding. So something just to keep in mind when we're looking, as uh, Sarah said, about the funding from the American Rescue Plan coming in here, not all of those that we serve at Family Promise, in fact, year on year, year, year to year, it's about 60% of the families we serve report to staying with families or doubling up. And it seems confusing. It's very confusing even to those of us who are providers. But if my family is in a situation where we've lost our housing and I go to stay with our tia, our auntie, and then her landlord finds out we're living there, so we have to leave. So I'm not homeless when I'm staying with my aunt, but I am homeless when I leave and I go camp at the lake. But then I'm going to use some of my paycheck and get a motel now I'm not homeless with my children, but then I've lost my money. So I join the Family Promise program and stay in shelter. And once again, I'm homeless. My situation hasn't changed, but the definition has. So the National Family Promise Office is, is working on 
advocating for a change of this with Secretary Fudge um, at the HUD level. Um, we'll see what happens. The other piece I wanted to speak briefly about is the critical importance of prevention of homelessness on the front end. The more we can do as a community to prevent a situation of homelessness from happening, the better off we all are on so many ways. Thank you very much for your time this evening. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers. And um, just when I think about uh, like affordability, um, I was just wondering if someone could ask if, if we did away with uh, more than three people that are unrelated living together, would that help at all with this situation? Like, would there be people that are homeless that wouldn't be homeless if they could rent, like live with three other people? You know, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud, I guess. Thank you. Um, anyone in here that would like to speak, go ahead and, okay, go ahead. Please state your name. My name is Eric Hyde. You guys wasted a lot of the public's time tonight. Okay, so you guys gotta listen to me because I'm a member of the public and you just wasted hours of my time with your mostly nonsense. All right, I'm gonna be nice though. I'm gonna start with some things, okay? I wrote them down on my hand. Okay, I'm gonna try to be as fast as I can. I have a lot of information to run through. Martin Luther King said the most dangerous thing in this world is sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Uh, okay, I heard that uh, this land was stolen from the Ka natives. It was not stolen from the Ka natives. They were brought here, and then they were moved to Oklahoma. Okay, let's see here. Okay, that one's good. Uh, I hear the Lawrence Community Shelter talk about recidivism all the time. What are they, criminals or something, the homeless? Okay, let's go here. Uh, three people I want to thank. Brandon McGuire, who's got an amazing heart. Uh, LDCFM for saying everything that they said was awesome that they said. Uh, the police for being mostly right about everything they said. Um, and not lying and being awesome. Okay. Uh, I also want to say that you guys use uh, all the things you say for only now. Only You're only talking about now in the near future. I use my words for omni-logic. It's something I made up, an all-time logic, triadic logic. Okay, now I'm going to begin my speech, and you're going to listen to it. You're not going to stop me. I have a lot to say. It's very important. This is the most important speech of your life. Do not stop me. I will do it as fast as I can. Who cares who assaulted me with an aluminum bat two Sundays ago? Uh, uh, don't use that as an excuse to, dim to discriminate against homeless people. All right, I am the 11th immortal of Kansas. Does it look like I was hit with an aluminum bat up two Sundays ago? <sighs> look at my head. I bet you in two days, my cervical spine that was fractured is gonna be completely healed. Guess how many days that is? 11 days. All right, 11th immortal of Lawrence, Kansas. All right, uh, confused about what you actually mean about mimicking Boise, Idaho, and they're homeless. Um, 
because I used to live in Boise, Idaho, and I know by being a witness that they do not F around with homeless people camping in homeless parks there. Okay, uh, there's less traffic in town because of me. There's less trash in town because of me. There, uh, this town is more safe because of me. Sally Zagri, you need to quit labeling homeless people as mentally ill. Okay, we didn't ask, you didn't ask me to be part of this presentation. All right, I run the Love Freedom Knowledge Foundation here in Lawrence, Kansas. It's a nonprofit with a federal EIN. Please, talk to me. All right, oh, downtown diplomat ambassador. Oh yes, please hire me, uh, but via Bert Nash. That's a conflict of interest, by the way. Um, why did the city illegally change the traffic light timing downtown without notifying people? Now you're stalling traffic downtown. Okay, do not, uh, do not associate homeless with graffiti. That is defamation. I heard you say that. Do not prove, do not provide mental health service downtown without me. I am not a conflict of interest. Uh, the Burt Nash lady is discriminate. The, the one who's the mental health community support worker, she is a discriminatory prick. Not even, uh, uh, she used to work with the police. She still kind of does. All right, um, oh, de-escalation? I used to do that for three years with Lawrence Public Schools. Okay, I, okay. You are legally discriminated against the homeless with your words. Mrs. Zagrai, uh, Dare Center, hmm, they are open a lot less now. Okay, uh, allow some camping, but only, only by the rules, uh, which is federal public land. They can park, they can camp there, but not city parks. Get them out of there. Um, that, because that's illegal. Uh, allow some, oh, I already said that, uh, you guys really need to work with me, I'm way smarter than all of you, and I have been helping the homeless for 17 years. I know what does and doesn't work. These other pages don't have as much information on them. Uh, mostly good okay. job, city operations, awesome LS, LDCFM, HIPAA, yeah, Mrs. Zagre, HIPAA, violations you have committed pretty much. Blah, 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 I told you, City of Lawrence, to work with me, come on. Mm. You don't have to only work with public servants, come on, or private companies. Do you actually care uh, to work with the public? I, I see homeless all the time that are not criminals or using the camping ordinance abusively. Just get rid of the repeat offenders without fines or, and find them possibly court punishment so they can learn. Lawrence, Kansas Police Department, mental health officer, I already said that one. Uh, Kansas Ho Homeless Coalition, yes, provide homes, but regular but require the homeless to better themselves. I did when I was homeless for five months when I was on a film festival journey. Do not support citywide mental health operations. Who cares what other, uh, who cares what other counties are doing? This is Douglas County. Forget about them. Uh, Eric, no, need no, you no, 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 let me finish. I ask you to just wrap up. I am LFK man. You will elect me, city of Lawrence. I will. No, do not stop me. Do not stop me. Do not stop me. I'm almost done. 
I am the real savior of this town slash city that only one person unidentified has called to tell me, to give me credit. Four. You are doing the Lord's work is what they told me. Me, LFK man, Eric Bachheide, born October 14th, 1985 at 11.32 p.m. at LMH, where my brother and dad witnessed that I was born with a hard-on. How many people are born with hard-ons? You guys look like you will... Oh, there's blah, 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 blah. Okay, I'll skip ahead of that. I already said most of that. Oh, this is the last page. Bert Nash, it is impossible to reduce homelessness to zero. Are you... I'm not going to say that. Who cares about drug or addiction on uh, a stupid survey? You guys need to hire me. One more thing. Actually, there's one other page. I'm sorry. No, Eric. No, 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 no. Do not stop me. Do not stop me. I'm almost done. Uh, well, By the way, we're going to take a break if you don't finish, no. Eric. Thank you. Stop. Do you not should hire me. Eric. That way you okay, can do what fine. you want. Thank you. Sherry, any other speakers? Uh, yes, go ahead and come forward. Go down. Yeah. There's a bright side to every cloud, isn't there? <laughs> I'm a little bit shorter. First, I want to thank you for allowing me to come here tonight and share with you some ideas. Or at least my perspective on things. Please just state your name. Yes, I, by way of introduction, my name is Janice Mitchell Pewterbaugh. And by way of introduction, my family has a history in Lawrence for roughly 125 years. Um, my family came here in the late 1890s, were part of the founding of North Lawrence, and they owned the land they farmed there well into the 1970s. By 1901, my great-grandfather, J.D. Mitchell, had opened his grocery that served what is now East Lawrence and Downtown Lawrence, and the building that housed that grocery still stands there, along with the house where that they lived in at 12th and Pennsylvania. My family has over 100 years investment in this community. And I, that investment is what I want to talk to you about in regard to homelessness. You know, we are facing a time in which we have never had a greater need for something, a solution that works for homeless people. We have never had a greater need, but at the same time, when the need is great, that also means we have never had a greater opportunity to do something so amazing and so wonderful that Lawrence puts itself in a position of being a leader in our, in, a, in our country. The problem is, is that Lawrence has been telling itself some lies regarding homelessness for about 40 years. We didn't make up those lies. They came about in the 1980s. They started being spread around. And they've been around for so long that we just tell them to each other and we don't even think anything about it. We don't even notice it. And yet if somebody says, hey, you know, that's not true, we go, oh, no, I wouldn't say that. That wouldn't be politically correct. But even tonight, the four lies I want to mention were mentioned in the course of this pre presentation uh, hours and whatever we did. All four of them. And that's by people who are supposed to be committed to solving the problem. These are pernicious lies. I'm not going to waste a lot of time. I'm going to try and make it under the three minutes. The first lie number one, all homeless people are drug addicts, drunks, crazy people, criminals, whatever. Baloney. I went to New Mexico to take a job that was too good to be true in, in um, April of 
2019. It was a fantastic job. They sent me a bus ticket to go down and take my job. When I got there, I found out, sure enough, it was too good to be true. It took me several months to come home to Kansas. When I got here, we were facing a problem, a crisis of funding for homelessness. The 60 days I needed to get on my feet and said, I couldn't have because we didn't have funding to support our homeless shelter and because I didn't fit in the box of being a vulnerable person who was drug addict, whatever, da, da, da. So I, since the beginning of July in 2019, I have been living in a tent on the north side of the, the um, Kansas River here. It's okay. My family helped found North Lawrence. I love yeah. that river and I love the people in North Lawrence, okay? The problem is, not everybody fits in the box. Now, lest you take that as an insult to the people who are administering what we do here, that's not their fault. You see, when I go to talk with, I've known Matthew for years, I've known Tuck for years, I've known all, the, I've helped people, I've done part of that. And you know, man, homeless people who didn't fit in the box stayed with us in my home in, in North Lawrence years ago, okay? I understand that. When I go to them and I say, man, I need help, what they say is, Janice, you don't fit in the box and I don't have the funding, the programs or the services to meet the ones that do fit in the box. The truth of the matter is we've been sitting around in Lawrence saying we're doing what we can to address homelessness for the last 40 years and that's a lie. Lawrence is not adequately funding homeless services here. It has never adequately funded homeless servicing services here. And when we sit around saying, we're doing what we can, we're lying. And don't tell me it's because we don't have the money to do it, because this is an incredibly wealthy community. When I was in New Mexico, I worked with a community that had 75% poverty uh, and nothing. And we took care of over 8,000 needy immigrant people coming as refugees. Don't tell me that. Lie number three. Please, please let me get through this. Lie number yeah, three. Get, get through them, please, real quick. Okay, nine, lie number one and num nine number two were mentioned here yeah. um, in, in the course of these things. And if I had time, I would go into it. Lie number three is, well, you know, it's just so darn easy to be homeless in Lawrence. They come here for that. That's bull. Statistics don't support that. You can't prove that because it ain't the truth. And the problem with that is that it is a very degrading, dehumanizing lie. Because what it's saying, what it's really saying is, it's too easy for you to be homeless. You don't have a right. You're homeless. It's too easy for you to be fed every day. It's too easy for you to not freeze to death. What it's, and I'm, it makes me want to say, what kind of wolves raised you? Where I come from, you don't treat human beings that way. Human beings deserve to be fed, housed, closed, and, and we what, need to be doing that. Fourth lie. Fourth lie number four. Fourth lie. Four, no, lie number four. Well, some people just choose to be homeless. That's what, what's his name? I got him right here set on the thing. Really? Are you telling me that somebody woke up one morning and said, hey, you know, I think homelessness sounds like a lot of fun. I think I'll give away all my possessions and go live in a tent in the woods. That's delusional. No one chooses homelessness. Sometimes people experience homelessness and become disillusioned to the point that they can't do anything for themselves. Thank you. The, con the consequences. The consequences of these lies is that it creates desperate homeless people. And desperate homeless people do desperate things. They take bats and hit people in the head. 
They take, they might break every window in every b building okay. on for a block and a half, or they might, as someone did in, on a cold night in January, throw themselves in front of a train. There are consequences, human living life consequences, and we need to stop telling ourselves these lies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love you, Lawrence. Please, I believe in you. I believe we can do better. Thank you. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. My name is Meg Hereford, resident of Lawrence and a downtown business owner. Um, and I usually would write something down and I wish I had because we've been here a really long time and I um, am a little scrambled. But just want to acknowledge that there are some folks here tonight who are presently experiencing homelessness in Kansas and I want to um, commend them for being willing to come here tonight and speak to a community that they feel has pushed them further and further into the trees over the last couple of weeks. And um, I'd really love for the commission to, um, first of all, the, the presentation tonight has been amazing and I'm so glad it feels like ours really well invested uh, for me. And that was just a couple of hours compared to the clearly hundreds and hundreds of hours that this coalition of people has put together uh, to bring this to us. And I know that you're just starting. So thank you for your commitment and your vision. Um, in the meantime, as these things do take time to implement, um, I hope that the city of Lawrence and that the commission will consider the testimonies of the folks who um, have felt pretty mistreated and um, maligned over the last couple of weeks and have been um, pushed further into the woods and into unsafe situations for them. You know, there was a reason that some of those folks wanted to stay visible, and it's because um, they felt safer that way. So uh, thank you for being here. Thanks for letting me speak. Uh, my name is Bradley Krebs. Uh, I appreciate you letting me speak before you today. I'm listed and recognized as homeless. According to federally ratified international law, um, for a government of any kind to push its community into homelessness or to refuse to help them out of homelessness in a timely fashion is a crime against humanity, not just a civilly unlawful act. We're talking about criminal conduct here. And I've heard someone say, in two years' time, we could have a solution. Well, that's a long time. How long have you had already? This is not, excuse me, this is called abuse. And abuse and torture are illegal in, in the United States of America, but we do these things anyhow. Uh, the police force in this town has been illegally searching our tents, been destroying our property, been physically battering people. We have a militarized police force who comes at us with chemical agent because they want us out of certain areas. A man who went to the homeless shelter to go get his belongings was attacked by a police officer with chemical agent. We're being told that we have to tolerate these things. We have a right to defend ourselves against an abusive government, or we're being told by the Kansas government that we don't have to. The Kansas government has told me repeatedly that we're not under international law. We're one of the founding nations of the United Nations. The, the world headquarters of the UN sits in New York City. Evidently, we are under international law, and evidently, this government is committing crimes. Now, I'm not here to chastise. I'm here to ask you to open your eyes. 
Nobody wants to be homeless, and the people who have spoken out saying that the people in the parks were only causing problems and that's all that they were good for, these people need to have some very serious understanding shaken into them. Give us a home, give us a job, and we'll take it from there. It's as simple as that. What's taking so long? The police have been some of the most abusive people we have come across so far, even more than the people who walk the streets robbing people. Do we really have to gather weapons to defend ourselves against our own police force? Do we really have to do that? But it is what it's coming down to. Do we really have to form a protest and stand on the, on the front lawn of the mayor's office or the front lawn of City Hall and protest? Do we really have to do this? But it's coming down to that. People with medical problems, I'm recognized as a diabetic. And how do I protect my belongings when, when city officials are coming ripping up my tent and throwing my things in the trash can? How do I, I protect my belongings? We have to file a federal class action lawsuit now against the state of Kansas and the city of Lawrence because of these things that have taken so long. It, it's, it's, it's a simple solution. There is money to be spent. And if you want some help, let us know. We're not asking you to do it all. Just give us a fair chance here. Thank you. Is there any other comment on this item from anyone that hasn't spoken? Okay. Uh, that's all the public comment, Mayor. Mayor Finkelai, thank you. Um, bring, bring it back to the commission. Um, Brandon, do you have any final thoughts or what? What you want from where you want us to go from here? Assistant City Manager Brandon, Brandon McGuire. Thanks, Mayor. Uh, no, no final thoughts other than just I would encourage the commission to take a little time and look at those last couple slides um, on the the policy discussion items. And uh, we're obviously going into um, budget season for both the city and the county. Um, there's a lot of uh, potential strategic plan tie-ins. And so we look forward to engaging the commission more formally in, in discussions along those lines about city county uh, coordination. Mayor Finkelstein, comments from commissioners? This is a work session. I am not gonna take any action. Certainly this was background and, and a lot of good background as we move forward into the next steps of this process. and um lots of different processes both the federal money coming in as well as entering into budget season but any comments as we step forward Mr. i know it's late so i just make this brief i want to thank all the speakers who came forward as well as all the public commenters all this information is great and i look forward to digesting it over the next few weeks thank you Other comments? Mayor Finkelstein, you. I would just in an echo that, you know, Brandon, thank you for, for putting that together. I won't make a joke about how you said that might take an hour when we started, but I'll leave that for another day. But, um, you know, the, the complexity of, you know, this, this issue, you know, when people um, call and say, you know, why isn't the city doing something? Um, why isn't the county doing something? Um, you know, these are issues we're trying to tackle and we're going to try, try to do better on, but there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of complex issues, a lot of people working on it. Um, 
and we are at a unique point, I think, um, where we have a demonstrated need as well as um, some funding sources coming in that we haven't had before. And I think it's the time to to make sure we do that right. And, and hopefully we'll, I look forward to working with the city staff and working with the county and working with our partners and working with the community um, to best deploy those assets and, and make a, uh, a significant and, and an important difference in our community. So, um, 10 minute break before we take up the last regular agenda items. 10 minute break, be back at 10.05. Oh. Mayor? Yes. Did we change it so that we're theoretically supposed to be ending this meeting at 11? That's that's what our rule is, so. Okay. 10.05, we'll have 55 minutes. Let's okay. do it. 10 minute break. Mayor Finkel, coming back from break, I'll do roll call. Vice Mayor Shipley? Here. Commissioner Nanda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkel, here. Um, we do have two regular agenda items. Um, then the city manager's report, and I know it was supposed to be done by um, 11 under our order. Do we want to push ahead with these? I don't know though. We ready to go with these? Thoughts? And just to clarify, Mayor, this is Sherry Reedman, City Clerk. You do have the ability to extend beyond. that. You don't have to, it's not a hard stop at 11. You would just have to make a motion to do so. Mayor Fingold, I thank you for that. Okay. Let's uh, proceed then with agenda item one, and it's to consider directing staff to include an adjustment um, related to project management. Um, Mayor and commissioners, Dave Wagner, uh, director for municipal services and operations. I, I just wanted to set the stage real briefly and we'll let Melinda and uh, uh, Trevor talk about their items in more detail and specifics. I will mention Melinda is a math major as well as an engineer. so. Um, in fitting to the night, she, uh, we're all well aware of her abilities to do math, so we rely on it a lot, but uh, just circle back around to the, to the day. Um, I, I appreciate your time tonight. I think we'll be briefer than an hour, um, but uh, it depends on the level of questions you have. Uh, our presentation is relatively short, uh, but again, it's, it is important. Um, the capital improvement program is, is critical to the city. Um, I think uh, if you recall, Craig in his 100 day presentation said infrastructure needs love. And uh, um, we followed through with that. I think both in the strategic plan as you see a lot of the activities and initiatives coming before you um, as well as uh, what we've worked on um, with Jeremy's help uh, recently both on funding as this proposal is how to attain the, the staff resources we need to actually execute that capital improvement plan i think a, a lot of people are aware of the condition of the of the city streets and the alleys and and uh while they may not be as aware of the of the water lines and the sewer lines and and all the other infrastructure whether it's the air conditioners on sports pavilion in lawrence or whatever it is it, it all takes maintenance um and um, the construction management engineering and development group 
is real critical to delivering those projects in that CIP. Um, that said, I, I think it's important um, that we understand that as we deal with critical infrastructure and the critical services that those things provide to the community, it's especially challenging um, given the uh, conditions that we see with climate change. I think Texas was a good example of that this winter about where infrastructure wasn't ready for, for the weather uh, or ready for uh, changing conditions. And they had significant failure and issues with that. Um, you know, and I, I'd like to say, I don't think that can happen here, but I won't, I won't be that optimistic. I think it can happen here but I think execution of the CIP and effective execution of the CIP is critical for this community to avoid a lot of those kind of situations and get the resiliency in our infrastructure and our support systems that are so critical to the community. Um, I, I would say that, you know, deferral really doesn't save anything. We've had uh, in some of our infrastructure areas, we've had a uh, probably a history of deferral. I think uh, um, you all were presented with a, uh, uh, a methodology in the stormwater area to address some of that over the long haul. And uh, it is truly a long haul. A lot of that stuff happened over decades and it's going to take a long time to get out. Even though the CIP, you see a five-year plan and a lot of the things that we're looking at with asset management have plans that range in a 30-year uh, figure on programmatic uh, addressing some of those needs, both for growth um, capacity plus the aging infrastructure. And then there's always a component of uh, regulation that comes into play with those. Um, I'll kind of leave it at that and uh, probably introduce Melinda and her take over the specifics of what we're looking for to get some of the staff on board to help us execute that, that program. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Um, I'm going to share my screen here. All right, so tonight talking about the quarterly um, adjustment to address some critical project management needs. So I will start with a little background on the strategic plan and the reason we are uh, requesting additional uh, project management resources. Then I will go over the specific positions uh, requested, alignment with the strategic commitments and the fiscal impact. And last, I'll provide details of an alternative option. At that point, I'll pause to answer any questions. And based on commission preference, we can continue the presentation and cover regular agenda item number two for the farmland environmental remediation manager, or um, we can consider each item separately. So when I, when I pause at the end of slide nine here, we can discuss which way you would like to handle that. So a little background in 2021, or the 2021 budget was adopted in August of 2020. The quarterly budget adjustments were anticipated in order to align with the strategic plan, which was adopted in October of 2020. The strategic plan has five strategic outcomes. Tonight's action will have the most impact on the connected city outcome as we discuss increasing project management capacity to deliver projects on schedule and ensure well-maintained, functional, and efficient infrastructure facilities and other assets. 
So the city's five-year capital improvement plan or CIP is funded with a budget of 240 million with infrastructure projects in several main areas, including multimodal transportation, such as our sidewalk and bike pad improvement projects, reconstruction of 23rd Street, Wakarusa Drive and Naismith Drive, uh, stormwater projects, such as the Jayhawk Watershed Study and other improvements from the Stormwater Master Plan, water and wastewater projects, such as the rehab of the Call uh, water treatment plant and the $45 million nutrient removal project at the Kansas River wastewater treatment plant to meet permit requirements. And then facilities. So that includes City Hall reconfiguration, the field campus project, ADA improvement projects. A large majority of these CIP projects are debt funded. Some of the city's five year maintenance plan is also debt funded for deferred pro uh, maintenance projects that extend the life of city assets, such as street maintenance. Uh, stormwater rehab, water line replacement, and sanitary sewer rehab. So both the CIP and maintenance plan combined have a budget equal to 368 million over those five years, and 241 million of that is debt funded. So tonight we're discussing an opportunity to use bond proceeds to fund the additional project management resources we need it, we need in order to deliver those projects. <clears throat> Um, as Dave mentioned earlier, the construction management, engineering, and development section of MSO is responsible for planning, design, management, oversight of many infrastructure projects, in addition to reviewing planning submittals, writing design standards and policy, and providing engineering input to operations staff. Since the merger of Public Works and Utilities in 2018, the combined engineering group within MSO has transitioned to managing all the design and construction projects for the city. So as much as it pains me to say, it has become obvious that we're unable to keep up with the planned CIP projects um, as projects sit waiting for resources to move them forward. So in reviewing the capacity needs, I looked at the bond, the bond funded projects that the engineering group managed in 2019 and 2020. And the total expenditures were 18 million and 26 million respectively. So comparing that to the average bond funding of 48 million per year, it's clear we need to ramp up in order to deliver these projects effectively and on time. So the action requested tonight, um, staff is recommending revenue and, and expenditure increases be included in the quarterly budget adjustment connected city outcome. This will result in no net change to the operating funds. It will increase the list of authorized full-time equivalent positions by six FTE. So recommends a budget adjustment for the following additional resources. One engineering program manager for water and wastewater facilities. Uh, currently the treatment division manager is doing two jobs, supervising operations staff and managing multiple capital projects. So that's not sustainable and a dedicated engineering program manager is needed to handle the long range capital planning and manage the treatment facility projects such as that $45 million nutrient removal project at our wastewater plant. Uh, we have two senior project engineers or project managers that are needed to increase current project management capacity. Two inspectors will help meet the increased project delivery schedule. One project's coordinator will provide more transparent project communications, contract management, financial reporting. And <clears throat> since the need's immediate, but recruiting, hiring, and training is going to take some time, <clears throat> Excuse me. Staff recommends some project management consulting services this year to keep projects on schedule and optimize our project management processes. 
So in the table, we're showing the 2021 costs for these positions and the consulting services. The personnel costs are based on having the positions filled for six months of the year, which may be optimistic. Um, that assumes these positions are filled by July. Our last engineering vacancy took over four months to fill. Um, but that's why we would prioritize issuing the RFQ for consulting services within a few weeks of commission action. Uh, so that we're able to get started on process improvements and keep projects moving forward as quickly as possible. Um, the 2022 cost uh, column there shows the full year cost of these positions. And again, for clarification, these costs would be covered by project bond proceeds and have no net change to operating funds. So I'd like to briefly cover how tonight's recommended uh, action aligns with the strategic commitments, uh, first community engagement, to achieve excellence in public engagement, project managers need capacity to collaborate with staff in the communications department and with the community. Uh, so those recently approved positions are an important part of this increased capacity um, and efficiency for project delivery. Um, under engaged and empowered teams, providing adequate resources to get the work done is fundamental to having an engaged workforce. Uh, projects in the five-year CIP vary in size from $100,000 up to the, the 25 or the 45 million uh, project that I mentioned. Uh, project managers are often assigned between five and 10 projects each year right now. And some of our engineers are working more than 50 hours a week. Uh, increasing capacity will allow work to be completed efficiently, um, allow time for innovation and process improvements, and it will support the work-life balance resulting in a workforce that feels valued. So for the fiscal impact of the requested action, uh, here's a summary of the adjustments by fund that would be, uh, that would result in again, no net change to the operating funds. Three of the positions would be paid uh, from the general fund and the other three positions paid from the water and wastewater fund. So the increase to expenditures in 2021 would be 129,000 in the general fund, 150,000 in the water wastewater fund. Again, these are the costs for six months and those costs would be reimbursed by revenue from the debt funded projects. So that requested revenue increase would be 129,000 from the project bond funds into the general fund and 150,000 from project bond funds into the water wastewater fund. The 2022 budget, the annual budget, um, it, it, since that reflects the annual cost, the total increase in revenue would be 558,000 from debt proceeds to cover the increased expenditures of 558,000 for these positions. So um, staff also looked into the alternative option of third party staff augmentation. So this option is the least cost effective. Uh, staff augmentation would be based on billable hours, which are typically billed with a multiplier around three times an employee's um, hourly rate. The city would only have to pay for the exact hours needed. Um, exact hour or existing staff would need to manage third party contract, but the estimates here are um, based on ranges and hourly rates that were shared by consultants who provide these services. And these estimates assume full time, 40 hours a week, no overtime, just to have that comparison um, with what we were looking at for the in-house option. So the total annual cost for the alternative option would be 1.4 to 1.6 million. For comparison, the annual cost for the recommended six city positions is 558,000. Uh, the cost of the alternative option could require increases to project budgets, um, but the cost for the recommended six FTEs is less than 2% of the bond authorizations. 
So staff estimates these costs can be covered by project contingency that we have as we set our, our budgets um, for CIP and maintenance plan projects. So I went through that pretty quick because I know it's been a long night, but I, oh, I'll take a breath now for a second. And um, I basically say I've put, I've put up here on the screen just the action requested tonight. It is a long action. <laughs> That's one reason we split up these two items because um, they are very different, this request as well as that request uh, for the environmental remediation manager. So I'll pause, open it up for any questions on these positions and on this item, and then, um, you know, up to the commission, whether you would like to um, take, you know, public comment and consider this one separately or, or you'd like us to continue with the presentation. We're a little over halfway. Mayor Finkel, die. Questions? Yeah, Commissioner Arson, I just have two questions. I promise I'll keep them short. One is, um, so we've had our, CIP, our 2021 to 2025 CIP since the approval of the budget last year. Why are we just now hearing the need for these positions if we knew what projects were needed to be done as um, indicated in the 2021 budget? Well, we were hopeful that we could outsource a lot of the design work and some of the other aspects of the project. So we started doing that uh, last year um, as much as possible. You've probably been seeing more and more of those on-call engineering consultant contracts coming through to the commission for approval. Um, one thing that we we did have as a conversation uh, with the city manager in July, and it was how are we you know, going to get these um, delivered? And one of the things we were asked to do as staff is look into the option of funding these um, through bond funds, because that is a pretty common practice. And so we we had to take the time to research, you know, that communities are doing this, check with bond council, look at the logistics of it, as well as our systems and the processes we would put in place to track these. It's not ideal because our current time tracking doesn't um, allow for this. So it would be until our ERP is stood up in a year or two, it would be spreadsheets, you know, tracking our time. But um, I started out in consulting and I did that for nine years before coming to the city. So it can be done. Um, you know, Excel, we, we prefer to have systems for improvement in Excel, but um, that, that was one of the reasons just looking at how we would do it. Can we do it? Um, what are the obstacles with it? Commissioner Arson, thank you for that answer, Melinda. Um, and then my second question is, you, you talked about being able to fund this through the bond proceeds and that it would only impact about 2%, but you also talked about it being um, um, the money being coming from the contingency that we generally have for projects, which is very typical of projects. Can you um, give me an idea of um, what's our typical contingency that we add on each project and how it will impact those going forward? Well, uh, recently you had the CIP policy come to you um, as a commission, and, and I was on the group that, that worked with finance on that. Up, uh, up until then, it was not consistent. Um, each group, when projects were being put into the system and um, even through the prioritization process last year, we were not consistently applying a contingency. I would say within our group, it was about 10%, but every department was putting in their own projects. So one of the advantages of that CIP policy now is that we're going to have that more standardized across the entire city. So we're looking at, at that level when you're planning, you know, five years out, um, we were aiming more for the 10 to 20% contingency 
um, but including things like inflation, um, those escalation factors, looking at the market, making those adjustments as well. Um, thank you, Melinda. So 10% is pretty typical in industry that I've seen in the past. So that makes sense. Um, when you get out there to 20%, there's there's got to be some mitigating circumstances for that, which I, I would question. Um, but I guess uh, the other, I, that, that was my last question. Um, I'll go ahead and let open it up to see what, who else wants to ask questions. I may have more. Okay. This is Commissioner Boley. Um, Melinda, do you, um, you're telling us, I think, that hiring staff is the optimal uh, utilization for these bond funds. Is that correct? I've realized I've not been introducing myself. Melinda Harger, MSO. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Um, great. That's what I need to know. Thanks. Vice Mayor Shipley, um, I didn't write down exactly what you said here because you were clipping along, but you did make mention of the merger um, at MSO. And I, I wonder if there's, um, there was a little bit of being behind in projects because you said that um, some people had 10 to 15 projects. Is that what you said? Um, Sorry for this year, five to 10, yeah. Okay, five to 10. Um, were you a little behind to begin with and then we've sort of heaped all this on you or, or is it really just that we have so many projects planned? Melinda Harker, MSO. Uh, some of it was, you know, slowing down through that transition of merging and coming up with new combined processes as we were bringing engineers together from the public works side and the utility side. So, I mean, there, there was work during the merger, um, you know, getting that new culture and, and how are we all going to work together. But there were a lot of efficiencies gained through that. Um, I think a lot of it was, though, our, our scope increased. Um, we were standing up a sidewalk program at the same time. We were standing up new right-of-way regulations at the same time. Our group took on airport management. We um, took on all these projects from other departments. So it was that transition around you know, 2017, 2018, where you saw my face with the police facility project, you know, but um, prior to that, like with the uh, fire station renovation, you know, they fire was managing their own projects. And so that's been a big transition. We gained a lot of CIP projects through that and, and even maintenance projects. Now we have a an engineer, you know, focused on facility projects and he's just cranking out HVAC replacements, you know, for parks and rec right now, trying to get ahead of summer. So I think it was just, we took on so much um, and we were trying to prioritize knowing that we couldn't do it all, you know, what, what do we say no to? Um, what is the highest priority? So we were trying to align that with strategic plan and the direction we were getting city management at the time. Uh, Commissioner Austin, I do have another question for you. I want to go back to that contingency a little bit because it is an important part of the budgeting process. Um, since you're looking at using, um, says less than 2% of bond authorizations, which would be coming from the CIP budget contingency. How does that impact um, our budgeting to use the uh, policy amount of 10% for contingencies? Does that mean we're going to back off and say we're only going to budget 8% um, contingency or, or how is that going to work? Well, the 
oh, sorry, Melinda Harger, MSO. Um, the thought is we're going to look at these projects and that 10% is when we have the more um, defined scope. Um, I would still feel more comfortable going into planning and, you know, public engagement and those early design phases with that 10%. Um, that range up to 20% is more we're looking at a project that's five years out and some of the scope may not quite be defined. You know, we know overall what the project needs to do, but a street reconstruction can change, you know, what features are, are part of that street reconstruction and what the priorities are for the project get more defined as you get even into design sometimes. Um, so I, I think we're still going to follow that um, that range of the, you know, for those upcoming projects, we're, we're pretty confident that we're within 10% 10, 10 for the 2022, like, for instance, that we're coming up on now. Um, but you're still going to see the, the inflation and the escalation factors and that greater contingency for projects further out. So with this action, we were just looking at, um, you know, the 2021 projects, the 2022, we felt comfortable that we could absorb that. Um, and looking further out, we feel that those higher contingencies and those further out years, as we refine that, um, we'll have that, the money that we need for these projects, for this, for these six positions out of that as well. Okay, that sounds, this is Commissioner Arson, thank you. Um, Melinda, so can you give me just a general idea as to um, past recent projects, how much of the contingency we've had to use on these projects? Does it always fall up to the 10% or is it, you know, 5% or, or just does it vary? Uh, Melinda Harger, MSO, a lot of the projects have varied. We've had some that have come in substantially less um, whenever, uh, we were looking at, you know, bond funds uh, recently. The one that jumped out to me was the savings we had in the fire station pavement, for instance. Um, we spent only about 70% or maybe it was even a little less than that than what we had budgeted for that. Um, so, so that was good. Um, other projects, there's times that we increase the scope because we know that, okay, bids came in came in good on a unit cost project. And so we make a conscious decision that we are going to spend those contingency dollars because we know there's a huge need. And if we know it's in the best value of the city to get the work done now before pricing goes up, that we'll just expand the project. So it's difficult. I think a lot of times we choose to use the contingency if we can, if it makes the best sense for the city. We'll use it up um, wisely. By the end of the project. Okay, thank you. Um, this is Chris Short. Thank you, Melinda. One more question. Um, I know you've, you've got a plan to use the um, bond um, proceeds for these next year and a half, I guess it is, for funding. What about in the future going forward? Obviously, these are permanent positions. Are you, is there a possibility we're going to have to raise taxes? Or are you going to continue to use bond funding for that? Or how's that going to work? Melinda Harger, MSO, I apologize if um, I'll clarify, these would be continually um, funded through bond funds. And what we're actually looking at is anyone who works on a bonded project being able to charge against that bonded project. So we'll be gathering data over the next year and a half. Um, but the thought was that 2%, we knew looking very closely at the projects, you know, for 20 uh, 21 and 2022 that we were we were good um 
further out, we know that we have enough contingency to cover that. So I didn't mean to misspeak and say that the funding would change after a year and a half. It would still be bond funds. Um, we have a, a need, again, it averages about $48 million a year um, where we're looking at using bond funds over the five years. We really don't see that decreasing much beyond that. Um, when we see the need, as, as um, Dave Wagner mentioned, we're looking 30 years out and the need doesn't drop down much. You know, we're, we are catching up, but on many of these assets, it's going to take 20 or 30 years to catch up. So um, we have, we see a need to continue to have this staff. It's not just a short-term solution. If it was something where we needed to ramp up for some additional funds that were to come in for a one-year time frame, we might be looking at something different, a different recommendation, but this is something we see as a long-term. So we needed a long-term solution. Uh, Commissioner Arson, thank you. That's all I have. Mayor Finkel, I have other questions. I do think I want to open this up for public comment and discuss this and then move to the, the next one. Uh, I, I think they're distinct enough that we should probably do it that way. So any uh, other questions before I open it to public comment? Seeing none, if if you'd like to make public comment on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature, or if you're present in City Hall, you can let Sherry know and she'll call upon you. Patrick Wilbur. Good evening, everyone. Can I win people over by saying I'll be brief? That'd be it. Good. Um, I just wanted to dovetail a little bit on the commitment that we're making to staff here, that's six positions, seven if we include uh, the next item. And I think we're in, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. We're still coming out of hopefully an economic recovery, but nobody knows for sure. Um, making that commitment is, is pretty deep. And I think we're in a position where if we overhire at this point, in a couple of years, we may be looking at staff cuts. We may be looking at cuts that we don't want to make. So um, I'm asking for the commission to be prudent. I'm not asking for austerity. I'm just asking for some economic restraint. And it's this is an issue that you can revisit in the future. The decision doesn't have to be made tonight. Um, the, the other thing that I'd like to address is uh, I think when we hired the last round of 13.5 positions, um, there was some discussion that it's not a tax increase, but the truth is if we're gonna hire 20 positions, that's money that could be returned to the taxpayers. And so, yes, maybe our mill levy doesn't go up, but we know valuations go up. We know the pain that homeowners will feel from that. And again, we're in a position right now where a lot of people can't absorb that. Um, we also have a 0.3 sales tax that was renewed in 2017 that's specifically dedicated to infrastructure. So I think some of the questions we have to ask is, if we have that much money set aside specifically for infrastructure and we have a great deal of money set aside in the general budget, how are we hurting so bad and why do we have so much backlog on infrastructure? Um, I think in regards to the question that, the first question that Commissioner Larson asked was, was a question I had as well about the, the late notice. I was wondering if this was something that was a surprise to the commission. And I'm starting to wonder if this quarterly update thing is the best idea. Um, we have 
the yearly budget planning process. I think at the time it sounded because of the economic circumstances last fall, it sounded reasonable, but we really need to not make decisions when something pops on an agenda. So I would just ask the commission to defer this for now. We can revisit at the end of the year or for the 2022 planning, but it's not a decision that should be made tonight. And this kind of commitment isn't appropriate right now. Thank you. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, I was just wondering if there's gonna be any more positions that we're gonna be creating in the next couple of months. Cause it seems like we just created some positions like a month or so ago. And I'm just wondering I if any of these positions, if we knew about them when we were doing that last round, but we didn't say anything about it. Cause what if you, if these positions had been made available to like, when we did that last round, instead of just doing, what was it, 13 or whatever, we did like 20 all at once. Then would you still have voted it on all those past ones you voted for? Because this one seems more legit than some of the positions on that last round. So I'm just wondering if there's going to be any more unexpected ones coming up in the next couple of months. Because if there are, I'd like to know about them now before we vote on these. So just thinking out, thinking about that. Thank you. Is there any other public comment on this item? That's it, Mayor. Mayor Finkel, I thank you. Bring it back to the commission for questions or discussion. Vice Mayor Shipley, um, I'm not sure if Melinda would be good for this or maybe Craig would be, but over the course of, of five years, would those positions be likely to stay that long in, in that particular field? The city manager, Craig Owens. Um, well, as Melinda was saying, we, we expect that there's going to be a pipeline with projects that'll go beyond that. But I would say uh, a certain amount of attrition is what we've experienced. Um, engineers are going to be in high demand, and I think we're going to be in a talent war for keeping technical positions. Uh, but we're, we've got exciting projects, so that that usually is a good start. But I think if if we would see a downturn in uh, the amount of project demand, that attrition would probably give us some opportunities to, um, you know, kind of gently move into that. That isn't what any of us expect. Um, that's not what our CIP or capital planning shows us but I, that would be an option. Melinda Harger, MSO, the only thing I would add to that is um, we, we typically see one or two um, positions, you know, with turnover in our engineers every year. So we're typically having to fill maybe one um, or two positions. Um, this is Commissioner Larson. Uh, Melinda, could you give me an idea of what our CIP um, dollar amounts were for like 2018, 19, or 20 even? What, you know, what numbers we had for those? Melinda Harger, MSO. Um, the exact numbers, um, I will need to pull up real quick, but I can, I can pull that up on the website. Hold on one second. 
Melinda Harger MSO. So I have the 2019 um, CIP pulled up and this was prior to breaking out the maintenance uh, plan and the VERP. So all of that was included on one plan, if you recall, um, prior, prior to, um, to this. So in the 2019, the CIP um, for just that year was 70 million for the five year period was 275 million. And I'm double checking right now that all of that listed only funded only funded projects and not unfunded. Cause I'm just looking at the totals at the bottom, but I'm not, I'm not seeing any unfunded. So I don't think those were shown. Then for the 2018, let me pull that up. This document's 161 pages and it is going a little slow trying to pull it up. But for comparison, I could give you the totals for maintenance VERP and um, the CIP over a five-year period, if that would be helpful. This is still uh, loading. That's okay. Commissioner, you don't need to, to get that detailed. I was just curious as to when we're talking about from 2021 to 2025 being about $48 million a year, is that mm -hmm. the number you used? In 2019, we did $70 million, or that was what we budgeted? Um, that was what we budgeted, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so we don't have the actual number as to what we actually wound up doing because if we're, you know, if we did 70 million with the staff we had in 2019 and now we're asking for six, seven more staff and we're only going to do 48 million, how does that, how does that pan out? How does that math work? Um, Melinda Harger, MSO, the numbers I was looking at is we were typically around that 20 million in expenditures. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was a separate number for uh, encumbrances. So um, I, I'd have to go back and pull all the project numbers and reports um, for that information unless um, you know finance has that already in a, a quick report. Um, but it did take a little bit to pull the information out of the system to specifically look at bond funded projects and expenditures. Okay. I thought I had read somewhere that we're in about the 20 million dollar range or 25 million dollar range for previous years and that that um with that we've just started up in that um with the idea of getting more projects done which would need obviously more staffing to oversee it so i mean that's what i would call it i just wanted to verify get some verification on that Commissioner Arson, I don't have anything else. Mr. Mayor Finkel, I, I asked that question and I said there's about 18 million in bond expenditures in 2019 and 26 million in 2020. Um, that doesn't include other funding sources, but the 2021 CIP maintenance plan is 59 million for bonded projects. Commissioner Larson, I thought I read that somewhere. Yeah. Thank you. So this is Commissioner Bowley. So the comparison is between the bond funded projects in the earlier years and the bond funded projects this year. Okay. Correct. Yeah. That's what I thought. 
Mayor Finkel, I, and so I understand, I think I understand this, but to clarify, um, you know, basically we are, well, let me ask this. Have we, we haven't done this before, right? Where we've charged engineers against particular bonded projects and got reimbursed for it, correct? We've not done that personally in Lawrence. Correct. Uh, Melinda Harger, MSO, that is correct. This was a first um, in conversations with, you know, uh, Craig Owens, um, he, ha he had been familiar with this in the past and we started researching and talking with bond council and they said, yes, a lot of communities do this, but this was nothing that we had um, done as a city in the past. As far as we're aware, we checked back and we can't find any records of ever doing this. Mayor Finkel, that's how I understood it. And again, many other communities do that. I see that Jeremy turned his camera on. He might have something to add to this conversation, either this, the CIP question. Thank you, uh, Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director for the city of Lawrence. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I was uh, thinking, you know, perhaps I could uh, approach this from just a little bit different angle, not being the engineer, but um, as I understand it, our, really our options are to um, outsource this work and that's sort of what was programmed into the CIP at the time it was presented to you uh, in May, or um, what what the city manager had pr proposed on the table and what uh, staff has taken uh, several months to sort of look at and analyze is if we were to uh, take those same dollars and you know bring it in house, would we be able to perform at a higher level um, and provide a, a a higher quality product uh, in the in the end for the customers and the utilities and for the taxpayers uh, for the city. And uh, what Melinda has shared with you is that analysis that said, indeed, we would uh, be able to um, convert those dollars, if you will, from a contractual service to a salary position. And so um, while this is a new concept, it's nothing that that this uh, that Lawrence has really contemplated before. Um, in a way, what we're trying to do is um, kickstart or or jumpstart the the uh, CIP that was presented uh, in August. Um, and so, from a from a finance standpoint, it's really you know we're we're going to capitalize these expenses. The question is, are we going to capitalize them with a, an outside firm? that provides the work or are we going to capitalize them with internal staff that provides the work? And uh, our analysis shows that we'll actually go further by capitalizing these expenses with internal staff than we would if we capitalize these expenses with an outside firm. Does that help? Mayor yeah. yeah. No offense, Melinda, but that was pretty good by Jeremy there. Thank you. <laughs> So Commissioner Rush, this kind of goes back to something that I have very strong belief in, and that is job costing. Something I've talked about since I've been on the commission is, is knowing what a job actually costs. So what I'm hearing tonight is that, you know, all these, these bond projects that um, we know what we're outsourcing and what we're paying for consultants to do it, but we don't necessarily know what our own staff is costing us on each job. And it's so important that we know that. Uh, and, and so in, in that regard, you know, I, I agree with the idea of, of using the bond funding. 
And just to go to Mr. Wilbur's question is, well, can't we lower taxes, potentially lower taxes? And then there, there's always that possibility. But, you know, one thing that when we brought Craig on, one thing we really wanted to focus on was infrastructure. And he evaluated that in his first 100 days and and talked about the need that to really upgrade, get to do more with our infrastructure. We're behind. We keep falling behind on it. And um, this um you know, we just see the workloads increasing. We've been, you know, in the memo, it indicated that staff is uh, working um, many more hours than the 40 hours a week on, on probably salary um, pay. And, and so to, to increase that um, staffing as well as increase the workload so we can get caught, start to get caught up more with our infrastructure is so important. So I'm going to support this. But with the understanding that I am not at all interested in raising taxes to continue to support this over the years and that we're going to uh, need to continue to find those efficiencies to ensure that we can maintain these positions in the future. Mr. Commissioner Bowley, um, I see this as a step towards the uh, lowest cost of ownership and it's really important that we get our infrastructure in the kind of shape where we can maintain it rather than do repairs of catastrophic failures. So I mean, we, we, we really need this for the community. May I pick up other, other comments? I guess I would say that um, you know, that this work is work that has to be done by somebody, as Jeremy pointed out. So either it's just not going to get done and infrastructure projects are going to be pushed to the back burner until we can get to them, which I don't believe is good for the city. Um, or this, we're going to pay someone else to do this work. And I think as Jeremy pointed out, and as Melinda pointed out, we can do that better in-house, cheaper than we can pay someone else to do it. And, and we could get better work out of it. Um, and lastly, I would say, I appreciate Craig and whoever else was involved in that, um, figuring out this funding source that allows us to do something a little differently. And that's one of the reasons, you know, we, you know, sometimes useful to, to hire from someplace, somebody else from the outside who's done it a little different way. And um, the capitalization of those costs for in-house infrastructure support is really um, a good deal, I think, for the long run for the city. So I hope we continue to look at that. This commissioner, I can make the motion if we're ready. Would move that we direct staff to include in the quarterly budget adjustment increases to revenues and expenditures for both the general fund and wastewater water wastewater fund for fiscal year 2021 for additional bond funded project management staff approve increasing the list of authorized positions by six full full time positions and direct staff to issue a request for qualifications for project management consulting services. Mr. is second. The Pingle Eye, there's a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. 
Commissioner Boley? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. Passes five to zero. We'll now move to regular agenda item two, which sets up some of the same information. But Dave, are you going to set this up too, or just go right straight to Melinda? Uh, good evening, Mayor. Oh, and okay. I guess this one. It's uh, Trevor Flynn, General Manager of Environment, Health, and Science with Municipal Services and Operations. Uh, Melinda, were you going to share your screen, or you want me to try sharing mine here on those slides? You could share yours, probably. That would be easier. Mayor Frankel, I'll note, Trevor, that Melinda left you eight minutes, so that's that's her fault, not not ours. <laughs> okay, can everyone see that? Um, okay. Um, a uh, remediation manager was originally proposed as part of a farmland operational work group, which was included in the fiscal year 2021 budget transmittal memo for funding considerations. Due to the situation with the pending work out of farmland, the work group was not included in the budget since remediation alternatives had not been selected at that time. This time the farmland project manager was still with the city who was also partially funded with the farmland fund for project management. This position was vacated in October of 2020. The vacancy was filled with an engineer in our construction management engineering development group within MSO, but the position was funded differently since the position was not filled to manage the farmland program. The city historically dedicated a staff member to farmland and then went to funding half of two positions uh, from the farmland trust, with this being an engineer and a technician, um, typically funded about 50% each. Farmland needs a dedicated project manager with a background and knowledge to direct the complexities of the remediation project. Personnel funding for this FT request is from the Farmland Remediation Trust. Since the city typically funded one FT from that trust that was recently split between two positions, this request would have nominal impacts on the expenditures we anticipated in 2021. There would be a slight increase in 2022 from historic personnel costs from the fund. The departure of the previous project manager now is a critical time to bring this position on board as GHD works through the next scope of work. KDHE just approved the work plan for the scope the commission approved in February. Critical decisions to the long-term remedial alternatives chosen for the site will be made later this year. It'll be advantageous for the project manager to be here and contribute to this process. Additionally, this will give the manager time to become uh, versed with the reporting requirements and participate in the regulatory negotiations with KDHE on the next steps, as well as negotiating the next National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System or NPDES discharge permit which is also up for renewal later in 2021. It will also benefit the city have this position in place prior to establishing the farmland operational work group that was detailed in the 2021 budget transmittal memo, which will likely be needed when remediation activities are full scale and operational. In terms of the duties of the position, the MSO environmental remediation manager position will serve as the, the remedial manager for the farmland program. Manager will direct all actions to ensure program and regulatory objectives are met. The position will be responsible for all existing regulatory reporting, scheduling of field activities, and data review associated with groundwater, stormwater, remediation, and MPDS permitting requirements. The position will manage all environmental reviews and actions associated with the existing consent order and environmental use control agreement, which is an important component for the Venture Park redevelopment projects. In the future, the position will establish and supervise the farmland program work group within MSO once more information is known regarding the remedial uh, actions. 
The city currently collects around 500 samples each year from farmland, generating the review of data from over a thousand lab results over the course of a year, which is reported in numerous deliverables submitted to KDHE. There are quarterly performance reports, annual stormwater reports, monthly MPDS data permit submittals, uh, annual budget reports, environmental use control inspections. There are weekly, monthly, and quarterly sampling requirements associated with our regulatory requirements at farmland. Alternatives listed in the memo include one option staff is not recommending and a no action impact. Third party program management is not recommended due to the potential, potential cost, the time it will take for an RFQ, due to the fact the contractor would likely be unfamiliar with the project, which would take additional time as well. No action impact workloads the current staff creating unavoidable overtime would likely result in additional hours being contracted with the existing remediation vendor. Funding the current proposal will result in similar personnel costs coming from the Farmland Remediation Trust for 2021 as previous years. In 2020, the Remediation Trust funded 20% of an engineer and 50% of a water quality lab tech. Uh, again, this is the project manager engineer that left in October. For 2021, since project manager position would only be here for part of the year, it would likely to be similar to the 2020 spending, depending upon the date of hire. And in 2022, we anticipate seeing a slightly higher increase with the remediation fund. I will be funding the manager at 100%. This are details of historic and projected costs through fiscal year 2022. As we move into future years, we need to anticipate the need for the larger farmer, farmland operational work group and depending upon the remedial plans implemented in those operational needs previously mentioned. Position requests and farmland project uh, in general lines with several of the strategic plan outcomes and commitments, efficient and effective processes. The farmland program is a core service with legal remedial action goals that have to meet Clean Water Act regulatory obligations. Environmental sustainability, the project will contribute to the restoration of the site and the achievement of favorable environmental outcomes, improving water quality and mitigating impacts to our environment through sustainable actions. Prosperity and economic security, the project is an innovative approach to improving site conditions for beneficial uses for future redevelopment while meeting remedial objectives. Connected city, achieving remedial action goals will provide opportunities for this site to be safe and a welcoming area connecting to the surrounding neighborhoods and ensure impacts from the former farmland operations do not impact the surrounding area. The farmland property is within a low to moderate income census tract and improvements will contribute, contribute to neighboring community members being provided the same degree of protection from environmental and health hazards. Additionally, maintaining compliance with the farmland permit is part of the key performance indicator of the outcome to maintain compliance with our discharge standards as part of our efficient and effective processes com commitment. And that leads us to the commission action uh, where we're asking uh, the commission to direct staff to include in the quarterly budget adjustment an increase in 2021 expenditures to create and re recruit a new FTE for an MSO environmental remediation manager for the farmland program. And with that, I will turn it over for questions at 1059. Mayor Finkelai, perhaps an engineer working well to get in below the buzzer. But I would need a motion to extend the meeting. Mayor, uh, this is Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. So with the procedure state as any item has been started can be completed. And then at that time, uh, so after at the completion of this item, since we've are, since you've already started discussing it, then you would need a motion to uh, continue to complete the remaining items. 
Mayor Finkelai, thank you. I did not realize that. That makes it slightly easier. Okay, open it up for questions. This is Commissioner Arson. I have a, uh, my first question is, how are you going to fund this? How would you plan to fund this once the trust fund money runs out, which it will? Uh, Trevor Flynn, MSO, that's uh, a very good question. And uh, it will run out. We, we, I think we're all aware of that. Um, I think we have a little over 2.5 in the unrestricted uh, fund balance right now. Um, when the, when the project, when the, if remedial um, construction, so to speak, is on the ground, we have some options to maybe do some uh, capital bond funding while that's in place. And then that long-term uh, funding uh, question is out there, whether we uh, supplement it with other funding um, internally or we find some grants. Um, I know I'm, I'm hoping this position will also have some, some bandwidth to uh, maybe pursue some of those uh, funding options out there, but uh, I will, I'll turn it over to to Jeremy to chime in, but uh, we were, were unsure to 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 project the long term. Jeremy Willman, finance director for the city. Um, Commissioner Larson, uh, unfortunately, we don't really have an identified uh, funding source uh, for this position currently. Um, but given the fact that the environmental uh, responsibility is the city's responsibility, we felt like we needed to get um, the position in now and then uh, program this into the 2022 budgets and going forward uh, against all the other priorities of the city. Uh, Commissioner Larson, thank you, Jeremy and Trevor, for that. And I, just one last question. You said the previous position was split into two other positions and moved. I'm assuming then that the funding for that split position is no longer being taken out of the trust fund. Is that correct? Trevor Flynn, so that's correct. Commissioner Larson, thank you. That was all my questions. Mayor Finkelty, Trevor, can you stop sharing your screen, screen there? Um, other questions? Seeing none, I'll go ahead and open up this to public comment. Any persons who'd like to make public comment, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. And Sherry will call upon you. Uh, this is Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. Mayor, there's no public comment on this item. Mayor Finkelai, thank you. I'll bring it back to the commission for questions or comments. Yeah, this is Commissioner Arson. I guess I just have a couple comments. You know, obviously this is a project, probably one of the biggest projects we'll have as, as, a, as a city um, going, going forward. Uh, one of the bigger ones, I should say, and it definitely needs a full-time project manager. These these are very complicated uh, projects, and it's multidisciplinary. And so, to, to think that we could move forward without a full-time project manager is extremely short-sighted. So, I'll support this. This Commissioner Bully, I appreciate uh, the leadership that uh, Commissioner Larson provides on this issue and on this. Uh, challenge that faces the city. I would also like to express my interest in the city being very uh, dedicated towards um, applying for grants to assist us in 
the ongoing costs of this project, which uh, greatly exceed what uh, was anticipated in 2010 when we took this on. And I'll support this. Mayor Finkel, I would um, echo the comments that I don't see how we can avoid having someone work on this project and be the um, lead on it, someone who can understand it and be involved in it and work with our consultants. And as Commissioner Bully said, I think someone who is is dedicated to this project also, I believe, increases our chances of being able to look at ways to fund the project um, and, and be a effective, you know, for lack of a better word, salesperson to the entities we're going to should need to convince to uh, help with this environmental project. And I think the funding sources will be out there for that, but we're going to have to be aggressive to go get them. So I think it, it helps us on both ends um, of this project. Other comments or motions? Commissioner Nanda, I don't have anything to add because I think you two or you three have succinctly expressed um, a reconsideration that, that we have to make on this item. So I will go ahead and make a motion unless Vice Mayor has something that she, she wanted to add. Okay. Um, I would move that we direct staff to include the quarterly budget adjustment and increase in 2021 expenditures to create and recruit a new FTE for MSO Environmental Remediation Manager for the Farmland Remediation Program. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkel, there's a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. Passes five to zero. And now I guess we either need a, an extension or we just call the meeting good and skip the city manager's report. No. This is Commissioner Ananda. Do we need to put a time on the extent of the extension? Uh, Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. Yes, you do. Okay. This is Commissioner Ananda. I would move that we um, extend our meeting a further 10 minutes. Commissioner Bully, I'll second that. Mayor Finkeldy, motion by Commissioner Ananda, second by Commissioner Bully. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Mayor Finkeldy? Aye. In the words of Patrick Wilbur, let's all be very brief. Um, commission items. I would just say real quick that we did sign up for the uh, Mayor's Water Challenge. I don't know if Chris is still listening, but we did sign up for that. And we do have a social media campaign going on. We did not, I guess, proclaim it um, in particular, but we do have a social media campaign going on on that. And thank you, Porter, for working on that. Any other commission items? If not, see Andrew's report. Thank you, Mayor. City Manager Craig Owens. Um, there's just two items on there, the utility billing report and the um, uh, future agenda work session items. So 
I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have on that. Mayor Finkelvai, good, good use of your time though, Craig. I like that. Um, that is a, is a public hearing item. If any person of the public would like to speak on the future agenda or the utility report, please raise your hand. Jerry Riedemann, City Clerk, there's no public comment on this item. Mayor Finkelvai, seeing none. Um, bring it back to the commission, assuming there's no comments on the same managers report. We go to the calendar items. Any comments on calendar? Ms. Commissioner Boley, um, there's a Justice Matters event. I don't know if you're going to put that on our calendar or not. I don't remember when, Mayor Finkel, I'm not sure, I don't remember when that is. is. Is that in May at some point? May 3rd, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think probably I'll just put that on the calendar. Mayor Finkel, I thank you for that. Any other calendar items? Well, seeing none, we didn't even use the 10 minutes, so that's a good sign. Mr. Foley, move to adjourn. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkel, aye. A motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. aye. Passes 5 to 0. Thank you all, and uh, we'll see you next week. Good night.